You're listening to the Scottish Football Forum's podcast, Euro Special, the home of Euro 2020 banter. Hello and welcome to the latest Euro's edition of the Scottish Football Forum's podcast. It's a Euro bonanza as I am joined by not one, not two, but three special guests to preview Scotland's first major tournament in 23 years. First up is the man whose voice you often hear at Hamden, a man who's the best seat in the house during the Euros, stadium announcer, Graeme Easton. Graeme, thanks for coming along. How are you? Pleasure. I'm delighted to be here. Yep, feeling spiritual there. Um, and next up, we have a man who's interviewed many legends of the game, from Gordon Strachan to Steve Clark to my boy Callum. It's Sky Sports News' very own Charles Patterson. Charles, welcome along. How are you doing? Good evening. I'm glad that you mentioned Callum in there. He would not be uh, out of place amongst the legends, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> that's sure. Um, and he should be sleeping now, so we won't tell him that we've been speaking to you because he will not be happy with me in the morning. <laughs> um, and and finally, um, we've got a man who's recently published a book all about Scotland's last tournament adventures in France 23 years ago. It's the author of World Cup 1998 Scotland Story, Neil Doherty. Neil, thanks for coming along. How are you? Hi, fine, fine. Thanks, John. Lovely to be here. Yeah, it's it's great. It's a um, it's gonna be an interesting panel tonight. This um, as we try and um, fight for airspace, but um, yeah, well, I'm sure it'll be great. So, how how are we all feeling about the finals? What's the excitement amongst your relevant households, etc.? No, but, uh, we're getting there. We're getting there. I've been trying to hook the boys into the fact I've got a nine year old and a seven year old, um, and they don't get it yet. They don't get that this is a big deal. Um, I hope that they will in the next week or so. I've actually bought them a present for going away next week, um, and I'm just going to write on it. I am off to the Euros. Here you go. Enjoy, because we're, we're covering the team for next week when they meet up in uh, in, in Darlington. And um, I hope by then suddenly they'll click, and then there will be excitement. But I think it's it's been a slow burner since obviously they qualified in November, and now we're on the cusp of the tournament. It's it's great. It's absolutely terrific. Yeah, I'd agree with Charles. I've got, I've got three kids, uh, two 14-year-olds, uh, 14-year-olds, can I count now? Two 16-year-olds and 11-year-olds. So my, my son uh, was discussing, or leading the discussion last night over the dinner table about mm, right, the first Scotland games at two o'clock, so I'm at school, and he was having a, a debate about the rights and wrongs and the morals of being at school, or would the school embrace the Euros in, in, in a traditional style and maybe have some tenuous uh, lesson plans which are vaguely linked to the Euros, uh, or just say, do you know what? Everybody who's got half an interest in sport probably wants to watch the game, including the teacher. So let's just stick the the big projector on at two o'clock and let's all watch it. So we've had some interesting debates, which I'm sure are going across a lot across the land as we speak, as in the rights of wrongs of kids and teachers and various other occupations sneaking on the laptop or whatever. So, uh, but as you say, Charles, I agree. You know, let, let, let's embrace it. You know, let, it's the first time in twenty years. Da 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 da. Let's get behind the boys remotely, and uh, if that means the kids watching uh, an hour of football rather than double French, then that's that's good in my book. Yeah, I mean, um, personally, like uh, major tournaments for me, I mean, it was the the same for Euro sixteen. I've been fortunate enough, John, to get tickets. You know, I've I've um, through the UEFA ballot, so I, 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 my tickets landed last night, and I've been absolutely. Beside myself, you know, uh, for the last, I've hardly allowed myself to, to believe that that, that these t- tickets were going to land um, in my phone. Um, so many, so many obstacles to to um, 
to obviously <laughs> overcome mentally to actually allow myself to believe that I was going to be be there. But um, as a result of the UEFA ballot, I've got I've got a ticket for the Czech game and I've got a ticket for Czech Czech Republic versus Croatia as well. So I'll be there for the, the, the first Scotland game. Um, Euro Euro sixteen. I mean, I was the same. You know, absolutely. Uh, you know, a year, however long it is beforehand, 18 months and into the UEFA ballot and, and I ended up with seven tickets for Euro 16 um, and, and absolutely loved, loved that tournament as well, unfortunately. As we all know, very disappointing that, that, that Scotland didn't make it, but um, over in France, it was, it was a lovely experience with my dad, you know, seven matches over 12 days, including England versus Wales and Longs. So... Uh, and it was just fantastic. Also, seeing France as the host nation and and um, Lille. So th this time around, I didn't actually allow myself to believe that I was going to be there until yesterday evening when the when the tickets landed. They were in my they were in my inbox um, after the the Netherlands game last night. So I feel, I feel fortunate. And um, next step is handed. I'm jealous of all three of you right now because I'll just be consigned to watching at home. Um, <laughs> blame this damn pandemic, otherwise I would have probably had tickets. But no, good luck to you all. Um, hope you enjoy the experiences of being there. And uh, last night, there was as we record this on uh, Thursday the 3rd of um, June, there was a friendly um, preparation. Preparations weren't going swimmingly because of uh, John Flight's COVID scare and then subsequent um, players having to self-isolate, etc. But Given the circumstances, it was a pretty good performance and it says a lot that we came away from that game thinking um, we should have won. Yeah, I, th I thought they looked uh, pretty confident. Obviously, a, a few changes and who knows what the, the start in 11 would have been. Would it have been a trial run for the Czech game? I mean, there's a lot of psychology and all of that, as we know. But I think regardless of who could have played, should have played, I, th I thought just the, the seemed up for it. There seemed a confidence about how they played and how they kind of pressed. And the kind of first, first goal was a great example of that. It kind of came to fruition and Jack Hendry was in a part of the, the in the park we least expected him when he scored but I, I just thought of confidence and like Stuart Armstrong who's never been a consistent performer in the last couple of years you know, he he was performing really well and um you know it's it's you you would think that Clark has he's starting living uh well, well well rehearsed but you know you might say well maybe he said his head turned out by a couple last night, but I thought it was a really kind of confident performance and obviously lost it the goal in the last minute. But other than that, you'd say absolutely delighted with that. I think the word the word confidence is is, is quite an important one here. Um, because you look at this group of players, and by and large, they're not scarred by previous failures. Um, and we'll get on to that, I'm sure. Um, and all the things that have happened in the past. But these are players, a lot of them are playing in the Premier League in England at top clubs. And ultimately, if you want to be a good national team, you have to have your best players playing at the highest level. And these guys are not just doing that, but a lot of them have got high expectations. And they are a confident bunch to speak to, to talk to uh, off the pitch. And they show that and they have that swagger on the pitch. And I think it has been a gradual coming together as a team. And last night was an interesting case study because it wasn't by any stretch of the imagination, I think, the first choice 11. But the players are quite comfortable with the system and they're comfortable within themselves, I think. And that's because they are a bunch of young guys who don't have any fears at international level. The club season's over. They've now got something good to look forward to. And they, th that was the most relaxed Scotland performance. 
that I've seen in a long time. The, the games recently, Scotland have not lost many games, but they've not won many. There's been draws against Israel, and there's been draws. I mean, there was a draw in Serbia, of course, um, in in 120 minutes, and then there was the draw against Austria recently, and another one against Israel. And they've never looked like they've been free of the shackles, but they looked very free last night. And even though the result was two each, I thought that they were, that the guys who played were pretty. They seemed pretty confident and happy in, in the system that they were in and what they were doing. And I would sp- expect to see the same thing against Luxembourg uh, in, in a couple of days. But let's be honest, this is the phony war. This does not matter. <laughs> These games are irrelevant. So they could lose 5-0 tomorrow night and off you go. You know, you can still go to the Euros. But I think it's a good thing to, to go and play a team like Holland who are not going to, I don't think, I don't think they're good enough to win the Euros. The Dutch, they're not that. They're not the Holland of old that reached the World Cup final just over 10 years ago or the great Dutch team of Bergkamp and Overmars and stuff like that. They're, all, they're an all right team, Holland. They're, I think they're not dissimilar to us. They're, they're, you know, they're a growing team. So to, get, to go and get a good result against them, I think that'll give Scotland and Steve Clark loads of confidence. Yeah, it was a good performance, I thought. Um, encouraging. I think we probably saw, I mean, I like the left-hand side of the pitch. I think possibly that that, that is, I mean, possibly the, the the left-hand side that we might see with Robertson and uh, Armstrong and um, obviously Tierney, who I think is increasingly the man. I think if if, if anybody is is we don't want to get injured, it's it's, it's Tierney. I think I think he's just for me again. He was the best player on the pitch last night. Um, maybe the the pie was I thought was fantastic as well. And I thought we had a lot of trouble with the pie drop dropping deeper and and obviously that that substitute. Double substitution early on when when Aldum and De Jong I think will, will play at the Euros for Holland uh, for the Netherlands rather um, a lot to be encouraged by um, the, the, that won't be the right hand side of the pitch I don't think but as as Charles was saying that that will be the the formation which is. I think he's got two formations O'Neill because before last September Steve Clark was playing a back four mm. and then he switched it. And it's obviously been a back three ever since. So he's got options there. And he certainly, he was always going to play, I think, a back three or a back five or however you want to look at it against the Dutch. I wouldn't be surprised if he plays a back four against Luxembourg, um, especially if he has the two um, the two right backs available to him because he needs to have a plan, an alternative plan if they need to go for it. He'll want to go out and beat Luxembourg and I think he'll play a back four because it gives you the option to play the two high wingers in Forrest and Fraser, which is, to be fair, what they were doing before he switched it. So I think he is, as you said, he's right. I think he's set in his, in his formation in terms of what he'd like to do, but he's also got alternatives now. And I don't think in the past Scotland had that. I think we showed in that Israel game, um, the, the one each game, but the first half, the 5-3-2, five, five, wasn't working that particular occasion. And he switched at half-time and, had, and brought Fraser on and it had an immediate impact with Fraser scoring. And we were the better team in the second half. So Clark's not arrogant enough to say, this is the formation I'm sticking with it and, and nothing to it. He's flexible enough to make the changes where need be. Um, I was uh, A few people were a little bit disappointed when we took off Tierney and Robertson, but see, to be honest, I'd rather keep them in cotton wool between now and the, the 14th of June because we need these players. And plus, Greg Taylor played very well when he came on. I wasn't convinced with McKenna, to be perfectly honest. He looked a bit sluggish, but Taylor looked really good again. I don't get the criticism he's had from Celtic fans this season. Well, that's club football. Yeah. <laughs> we'll move on from that though. Tierney <laughs> has the potential to be in the team of the tournament if he plays like that. And yeah, I think Tierney, yeah. I think if, if Steve Clark's got any sense, as you said, he will put him in bubble wrap and cotton wool and not even let him near the Luxembourg players. 
just there's no point in playing him. You know, give give everybody a run out. And if there's six or seven players coming back from you know COVID isolation uh, on Sunday, then there's no need to play Kieran Tierney uh, or Andy Robertson. I mean, Greg Taylor should get sixty to ninety minutes, I think, against Luxembourg because it's a squad game. They're lucky that they've got twenty six to choose from, and you would hope that as many of them as possible will get a run out and get a feel and get this sense that they they feel part of the picture. Uh, heading into that game and this game we're talking now is less than two weeks away what 10 11 days away against the Czechs every single player in that squad maybe with with the exception of the third choice goalkeeper should feel I've got a chance to play so Steve has been around the block many times he's a savvy individual and I think um, things could not be set up any better for him Covid is the big unknown but then it's every, every team's in the same boat so if you can ride your luck with that, then you know I don't think they could be in any better shape going into the tournament at the moment. Uh, the, the big big overriding thing for me is that even just based on that, a couple of games and, and specifically last night, I just like the way that we seem to be a bit more attack-minded. And, and, and obviously the players we've got and the players you said earlier, Charles, are playing at top level, they are more attacking-minded players. And in the past, we'll have kind of gone for more sort of defensive approach in a, in, a, in a traditional sense. But I like just, just now, maybe because of the nature of, of, of the best players we've got are more attacking-minded, but we're actually going for a more attack-minded approach and, and philosophy, which I, you know, just from a purely spectator point of view and entertainment point of view, that is that is more exciting than we'll kind of sit in and we'll be playing a break and we'll kind of, whatever, it's like, geez, you know, you're like bored with your mind. But at least, you know, I'd rather we... If we lost the game, we might lose it by with a bit of attacking intent. And, you know, I think that's what I particularly enjoyed about last night, that it was a bit of uh, swagger, you know, and a bit of uh, confidence. But if we play like that and play in the front foot and, you know, that, that'll be exciting from just a spectator point of view. And you'll be proud of the team, even if we get beaten, at least they played with that kind of, sort of style and that kind of attitude. So that excites me if that's how we're going to play, if we can, of course, in most of the games. Yeah, I mean, and, and I think the performances of like, for example, Dykes. I mean, when you when you when you compare him to the counterpart, uh, Weghorst for the Dutch. I mean, he, he did well. I didn't see a lot of the Bundesliga this year, but did very well. And did I, I would have had Dykes over 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 Weghorst last night. I, th- I thought um, for me, Dykes is another one. Uh, for me personally, we, would I would hope that he would now be a, a nailed-on starter. Christie, I think, as well, in that hard-running role to support both midfield and um, main striker, I, I think he's now played himself. I, I, I can't honestly see anybody else playing that role as well as, as Ryan Christie. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I'll echo what your, both your sentiments. I think there's a lot to be encouraged by. And, yeah, I, it's so relaxed as well I thought at times last night um, we didn't look we looked at you of, of, of the Dutch at times which you know, I, think are, I think we are equal to the Dutch this is what I was saying I think the Dutch are a team in transition they've not been at a major final since 2014 so I think I think we, I think Scotland should consider themselves to be the equal of Holland um, I mean Netherlands have got a great worldwide reputation for all the things they've done in the past Scotland's reputation in the past Again, we'll talk about it. <laughs> it's not great. But the, the players who are playing for Scotland are of the equal to a lot of the Dutch players. Um, and there's, as a country, as a nation, Scotland have a great ability to, to 
shoot themselves in the foot or talk themselves down. And the Dutch are not going to win the Euros. They're not a great team. I think they'll struggle to get out of their group, actually. Um, I think they've got as good a chance of getting out of the group as we do. So I, you've got to, I think you have to, you've got to look at it half, half, a half positive, a half full kind of glass, you know, and the signs are, the signs are good at the moment, I think. I was delighted for Kevin Nisbet um, coming on, scoring his first goal. And we're talking about players who are looking to make an impact, you know, with with players being out. A lot of these players would have been thinking, this is a chance for me to show what I can do and ask um, Steve Clark a question. There's Kevin Nisbet coming on, scoring the goal. Liam Cooper might not have started last night, had Grant Hanley not um, been left in Spain. He's put on a, um, a performance where they're saying, I'm worth a, um, a starting um, place in the 14th. Yeah, there's plenty of options there, isn't there? Mission defence. Yeah, we haven't said that for a while. <laughs> and and you're not very often for me without being a tactical genius. Okay, you might say you're weakening the team with certain positions, but you're not drastically weakening by swapping the you know, players in the past. If you one or two dropped out, like like Crikey, that is quite a drop from him to him. Whereas now you're going right, as you said, you know, you've got a, a good squad and there's a number of players who can you know, can complement each other and replace each other without too much of a, a drastic change and that, that's suppose uh, what you want for any team a club team or an international team you're not weakening in any major way by one or two kind of missing and obviously some obvious ones like Tierney you might say we, you know as you said earlier it'd be dreadful to kind of lose him in any way shape or form but other than that you know there's you know one or two debates as ever but you know I say there's more more positives in terms of people that can drop in and replace and be substituted without say overly weakening it in, in my humble opinion yeah, and on the same note as Nisbet, um, Turnbull, I thought, was excellent. Played himself right into contention for me. I mean, m- must be really, I must have really played himself into contention with that performance. McTominay will come in. Uh, he'll, I mean, Clark is as good as said that McTominay will play. So uh, this is what I've been casing over in my head. I would, I would imagine that he'll play that central defensive midfield position uh, where McGregor played last night. So does that mean that McGregor will then shift into one of the um, more advanced? It's not not as if it's a a, a very advanced midfield position, but the, the, the either right or left mid. Um, I, I'm not sure. I mean, Turnbull. Are we debating our uh, our, our first choice eleven now for? Because uh, <laughs> I've got an idea in my head about. It. This is assuming everyone's fit, of course. I th- I I think you cannot underestimate the connection. The Southampton connection here, and this is the this is the sleeper, and I think a lot of people would like to see Che Adams and London Dyke start up front together. I don't think he'll do that. I don't think you can underestimate the Che Adams Stuart Armstrong connection, and I can see potentially going into that game, you could have Armstrong, McGinn, McGregor, and McTominay all playing as almost a kind of you know a kind of square a square diamond if you like behind Adams with the two overlapping fullbacks or wing-backs or whatever we call them nowadays. And I, 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 the, the, the only concern, I think, if you're Steve Clark, you're sitting here, you're thinking, I've called up Billy Gilmore and I've called up David Turnbull and they've both made their debuts and that's great and they're exciting and they're the future Scotland. But if somebody in the midfield gets injured in that centre of the park, there isn't the experience and depth because Kenny McLean's out, because Ryan Jack's out. That will be his major silent concern I think going into this tournament and the young guys are great it's fantastic that they've been called up and the freshness is there but the four those four 
in the midfield, I think you'll play all four of them when you get to um, when you get to the game against the Czechs. And then the back three, I think it's it's Tierney, Hanley, and one other ultimately, and that spots up for grabs. And I think we both know who the, we all know who the fullbacks are going to be. Uh, and then the goalkeeper, it's a, it's a coin flip really for me, whether it's Craig Gordon or David Marshall. But the midfield is going to de- that will determine how Scotland get on in this tournament, how he combines the midfield and the attack. And I don't think he'll start with Dykes and Adams. I don't. I don't think he will. I think he'll. I think he'll like. He likes the Adams Armstrong combination, and I think that would be the thing that maybe a lot of people don't see at the moment. Which, if you've watched enough Premier League and you've seen the two of them combine in the last three or four months, that is um, that could be really telling for Scotland. Yeah, I think um, Ryan Jack is going to be a huge loss because there's no one in the Scotland midfield that does what he does. I mean, he does the simple sit in front of the back um, back three, protect them, win the ball, give it to other people. Whereas Scott McTominay can play that role, but he's more of a box-to-box type midfield. I think Cal McGregor's the same. Um, that's my main worry about about this team going into the tournament. But, um, but the things were promising last night, I must say, although the Depay goal, maybe someone like Ryan Jack would have covered that run. And we didn't have the players who really had that know-how to watch that. It's just my honest thoughts. And you're allowed to talk, by the way. It's gone a bit silent. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I would, I would agree with Charles about Sheridan. I've not, I've not seen that much of him, but you know, little have seen him. So he just seems to have that something a wee bit extra. He's more likely to kind of take a shot when you least expect it. And Dykes, yeah, he's, he's been effective and in a sort of more traditional number nine kind of sort of role. But I think Shea Adams and a lot of seen him be just that that wee spark and, you know, the goal he scored was like 20 yards out. You know, would Dykes have taken that shot and would he take that chance? Would he, I think he's got a wee bit something about him, a wee bit extra that you might not expect, a bit of finesse. And as you say, Charles, I agree with it. You know, combinations all over the pitch are so important. And, you know, again, without seeing the two of them you mentioned in action, you know, I'd agree with you as your, as your main point that, you know, combinations, wherever it is in the pitch, are, are so important. And, you know, um, I, I would I would go with you with uh, Shea Adams. Not that Lyndon Dykes has been dreadful by any manner of means, but I, think, I, I just Adams think that combination... Is, striker, I think, I think he's, yeah. he's now become that through force of will and, and performance. And then it's a question of how do you, how do you fit in around him? I mean, Brian Fraser's done very well running off uh, a main striker. So there's an option there, but is he fully fit? Probably not. James Forrest can do that. It wasn't that long ago James Forrest was scoring a hat-trick for Scotland. So, again, he's potentially lacking in fitness. I can see both of them being impact players off the bench. Um, but when you're, it, you speak to any manager, the, the theory is that fans look at the opposition and they think, oh, how are you going to stop so-and-so? How are you going to contain him? What are you going to do about this guy who's a danger? Managers of clubs don't, and the national team, they don't, you don't focus on the opposition. You focus on what your team is good at. And you speak to managers year after year after year, you control the controllables and all you can, can do is focus on what you're good at. And what Scotland are good at, it bizarrely is knocking it about. Um, and actually scoring goals. They're not that great at defending. And it's a nice change from the past because if you look at you, know, you look at the, the tournaments in the in the 1990s, there was they were at four major tournaments, they played 12 games, they scored eight goals. That's not going to qualify you for the last 16. Scotland are going to score goals. The question is, can they keep them out of the back? And Ultimately, it may well be you have to go and beat Croatia or the Czech Republic. You just got to score more goals than them, and that's not a bad thing, really. If you're trying to get a new generation of Scotland fan interested in the national team, 
I'm loving that d- deep insight. Score more goals than the other team, Charles. That's, that's, like, that's insightful. Scotland went to the Scotland went to Italy in '90 and scored what two goals? They they went to the Euros in '96 and scored one goal. I remember watching uh, speak f- uh, put five past New Zealand. I mean, that was a few years ago, but it was an exciting game. So that, that moment, you know. that's where they went out. This is the problem. I mean, we're gonna. I'm sure we'll talk about failings of the past. The failings of the past have been generally because they've not turned up when they've needed to. Great players, great teams. But I don't believe that this group of players is scarred by that because it's been so long since they've been at a major tournament. You speak to these players in, in, in media opportunities and you get to know a lot of them quite well through, through, the, through the job that I do. And they're not, they're not hindered by that. They're not bothered by the history and, and all the stuff that's gone before. You know they're they're, co- they're a confident bunch, and they actually like playing attractive football and going forward and scoring goals. Problem is that they can't stop the ball going in the net at the moment. So if they can do that, then they've got half a shot. I was encouraged by how easily we found the two goals, and I thought they were both really good goals, weren't they? Yeah, totally, I mean, yeah. Henry's was a surprise, but he's a lovely footballer, Henry. Uh, for me, at that right centre back position. I think we might see him starting against the Czechs. Um, he's just a nice footballer. Um, I, I haven't seen enough of him to, to really criticise him uh, defensively. I, I don't know if, if that's um, touted as a weakness of Henry's, but I certainly uh, like what I see in terms of his, his first touch. And he, he's pass, he seems to, and he allows obviously McTominay to shift into midfield, which is what we want. McTominay in the Europa League final was just, Unbelievable! I don't know if you you saw that game. So, and and, and then Robo just did what the the Dutch must have said. We have to watch this guy doing because he's world class. He, he he found that moment. He found the perfect cross, and as John was saying, I was delighted for Nisbet, to, and it was a real poacher's goal. And 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 Dykes is the he's the perfect hold up man. I, I would be surprised to see Dykes not starting. I just, I just can't see him sitting there on the bench. But you, you never know. He's just, he's just that focal point. He's, he's, he's uh, 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 so, so whether he's that poacher that, that Nisbet is, maybe not. But nice to have. I, I mean, Nisbet, as John has seen it, I thought did really well when he came on and, and he did a bit of tracking back as well, breaking up the play. Whether he can hold the ball up just as well as Dyke Dykes is just superb at holding the ball up, bringing others into play. So. Options, yeah. There's definitely good options, and Dykes did come in, in form um, at the end of the season with QPR, which was very encouraging to see. Um, so it'll be interesting to see what the team lineup looks like. But um, none of us are Steve Clark, so I wouldn't try and second guess uh, his lineup. So um, we touched on Scotland of the past, so let's revisit. Um, I don't know what campaign we want to go into from the 90s, um, but. Um, Probably start, in fact, let's go to Euro 96, right? Because that's the most recent Euros that we qualified for. Um, it was down down in England. We were obviously going for one of our games this time. Um, what's your kind of memories um, looking back at um, 20, um, five years ago now? I was, I was 16 in 96. And I think my memories are more from of 1996 than the tournament itself. And, and I was... All my childhood major tournaments were my life. I mean, from from Mexico '86, I, I share the, the the memories of Italia '90 being the first one that I really 
properly remember. I had a, a VHS, every goal of Italia 90, Toto Scalacci on the front. And every goal, as I think it was Charles was saying, I could probably remember every goal in every game, almost at a push um, of that tournament. Um, but Mexico 86, that, that I can remember, I collected the Panini album and um, Euro 88. I remember just just old enough to remember the, the, these two tournaments. So, but 1996, 16, you know, I had, I was in my first job, 16. It was a skill seeker job, you know. I was, I'd left school 15, 16, you know, so I returned after that to do, uh, do, do my hires, do a degree. But at that point, I had left the school and I worked in a, I worked in a, um, an electric, I don't know if you remember Giant Donalds in, in Ayrshire, it was um, from Kilmarnock, so it was a, a big electrical, so, so TVs, etc. only recently went out of business, unfortunately. Um, so I worked in there, and the games were on, the, the, the TVs, but I, I, I wasn't, I didn't, I didn't actually, um, I, I don't, I, I was really, been, I was really struggling to remember um, Euro '96 properly. The, ga- the games, you know, I, I was. I, I can remember the summer. I can remember the uh, Oasis concert at Loch Lomond. I can remember be- being immersed in that whole Britpop thing. But the games of football, they passed me by to some extent. And, and I think, I think it was that thing where it was even because of that. By that age, I had experienced major tournaments and enjoyed them. I took, had that taken for granted notion, you know, that, that, that there'll be the next time, you know, it doesn't matter if I'm working. I, I think what happened was I had to work in this shop with the TVs and I thought, I'll just try and watch them in here. Then I wasn't really allowed. And the tournament passed me by to some extent. I think the, 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 the two first games, the, the Netherlands game and the, and the England game were afternoon kickoffs. And then the Switzerland game would be an evening kickoff. And... I think I'd probably had to work in this shop, and not and, and the tournament to some extent passed me by, and it's it's sad really, you know, to to, to reflect that. I mean, I've since um, I'm, I'm a big collector of, of football, anything really, uh, programs, DVDs, anything. I always have been, and um, I did have a, a, a at one point I bought a DVD. It's a converted DVD of England Scotland at Wembley. And knowing that I was coming on here today, I did try and watch that in advance. And I did, I did, I did um, just to have a look at, because it's, do you know, I think it's such an interesting parallel that, that, that the next time we're in the Euros, England at Wembley, it's, it's so... Second game too. Yeah. Well, I, I remember when you were 96, it was all about that game at Wembley. And I think that the, the key lesson from that is not to focus on that, on this game, this time round. Because everybody was obsessed with Scotland playing England at Wembley, Britpop, Oasis, Blur, Three Lions, that bloody song, which was played to death all summer. And to be fair, it's probably the catchiest football song you'll ever hear. Um, That tartan kit that they wore, um, which was, when you look back now, vomit-inducingly bad. Appalling, but... It was everywhere. And the thing is, that was the time when Scotland qualified for major tournaments all the time. And as Neil, you said there, we took it for granted. We took it for granted that the national team were good enough to qualify. I mean, you look at the experience in that squad. It was stacked full of old boys, which is a 
big contrast to what we're talking about now with Clark's score, which is a very young score when you think about it. Um, I remember watching much of the tournament. I remember watching Dabor Sukar lob Peter Schmeichel, which was one of the best goals you've ever seen under pressure. Um, Cal Paborski's goal against Portugal. Brilliant. Absolutely phenomenal. Um, England's horrific grey kit that they wore in the semi-final against Germany. And England should have probably won that tournament. Um, and the, the whole, I mean, obviously we're talking about it from a Scottish perspective, but the whole of the United Kingdom and, you know, the, the coverage on the TV channels seemed to be swept up in the fact that England were going to win it and every game was at Wembley. And the parallels are quite stark this time around because they're going to have a great chance playing at Wembley again. But the thing that I remember most about that tournament um, was the England game because that was what everyone was focused on. I remember sitting watching it in the house and, he, and you know, and big Gary Mack steps up, misses the penalty. That's it. It's game over. And at the time, you think as a fan, oh, well, there'll be a next time. But you look back at it now, that was a failure. It was a massive failure, a massive missed opportunity to get a point off a great Dutch side who were hyped up and then to go and outplay England to a certain extent and not, you know, and not take the chance and then get blown away by a bit of magic from Gascoigne and then to blow how many chances against Switzerland? Well, Arlen McCoy's missed at least two or three oh, easy ones before he scores a screamer at the edge of the box. Absolutely ridiculous. <laughs> and the thing is, you know, those were great players at the time. Or we look back and say, this was a great bunch of players that played for... And Craig Brown had got Scotland to the tournament by qualifying in a group against Russia, I think. I remember them getting, they got a draw in Russia. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you get drawn against England, it's all the excitement about England, England, England. They should have focused on actually battering Switzerland and scoring the goals and, and doing the job. And it was ultimately a massive failure and they should have they should have qualified out of the group. There's no bones about it. That was a weird night watching the Switzerland game and hoping that England won. I mean, that was an uncomfortable position for a Scotland fan. Actually wanting England to win. But, um, I mean, everyone slags off Seaman for let, um, letting Clive out shots through his legs. But let's be honest here. England went above the Call of Duty by winning that game 4-1. We could not have expected that. We needed to score at least two against Switzerland. We only got one. Scotland were never good enough to score two goals, though. That was not the way they played at that time. They they they, they ground out results under Andy Roxburgh and Craig Brown. And in hindsight, that didn't work. As much as they got to major tournaments, when you get there, you're limited in terms of your, able to, your ability to progress, which, which is what fills me with so much enthusiasm for this team and the potential that it has. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I just remember it being a hot summer and the fo- football ruled the world. But ultimately... In hindsight now, it was a bit of a disappointment, really. And the tournament itself was was wonderful technicolour. Uh, you know, it was great. There were some great goals and great teams in it. But ultimately, the, you know, the semi-finals and the final were all a bit of a damn squib, really, when you think about it. Yeah, I don't have any abiding memories. I don't have a, as forensic uh, memory as you have, Charles. But, I, you know, I do remember watching it. And, you know, I do distinctly remember getting a bit excited when McCoy scored. And it was, it was a great goal. Against Switzerland and the England game, you know, remember the, the big moments of the penalty and, and Gus going in the water bottle when he celebrates and all that. But um, yeah, I mean, my, 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 I've, like many people, your kind of earlier tournaments, the one that I've um, remember more formally, I do remember watching because I'm that old Argentina 78 and 
82s of of kind of better memories of some of these kind of tournaments more so than 96 even it's more recent but i think that's quite common it's like your music memories your kind of best music memories when you're kind of 14 15 i think football's maybe kind of save you were alluding that tell neil you can sort of remember things uh quite well so uh, i the whole Britpop thing as you said it's probably a, more of that era i agree I more like to remember those elements than in this specific games but I suppose you're kind of prone to be in the charge. It was thinking back, knowing the results and how we performed, probably was a bit of a missed opportunity. I would agree. Yeah. Do you think that you mentioned there, Graham, that you remember 7-8 World Cup in 82? Is that just, um, you know, because of the age you were at that time? Or do you think it's mainly because as well, most football fans, when you think about favourite tournaments, they'll go into autopilot and think of the World Cups first rather than Euros. Yeah, probably, probably. I mean, I do, I do remember, I think you mentioned uh, sticker albums, Neil. I think I that either collected all the 78 World Cup or the, the Football League version that year. Definitely one of the two, I collected most of them. And you got like bubble gum with it, with the kind of proper stickers. None of the nonsense about £16 for two and whatever you get these days. But you got bubble gum with it and the big cards and facts on the back or whatever. Anyway, what we're talking about. Yeah, so um, no, I do distinctly remember 78. I do know that the, the Holland game, you know, it was very exciting. You know, when, 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 I mean, it's a cliche to say when game will score, but I do distinctly remember that game. Um, in 82, uh, remember that? I remember like, it was 82, now keep me right, guys, 82, um, was that Michelle Platini? Was that the Euros then? European Championships, it was called. I remember that kind of era, Platini and... 84, uh, yeah. Was it Jerez? Was that right? Yeah. That kind of, I remember those kind of players. That was, a, was a, that was a fantastic semi-final and final, I seem to remember. So I remember those kind of events as big moments. But that's, as you say, John, more to do with my kind of age and the sort of first ones you sort of fondly remember. Um, you got excited as football's live football in the telly, which was, you know, not that common back then as compared to today, today obviously. I think that makes a, a big difference, Graham, the fact that we are saturated now with football. Um, <laughs> partly the false guy, yeah, yeah. Um, but you know, it's on every, in the last year, it has been on literally every day, <laughs> uh, if, if nothing else, to G up the nation, um, through the pandemic. But in the, in those days, in the 90s, especially, um, it was difficult to watch live football, and especially, you know, the Latin the national team was always on terrestrial TV, so people watched it all the time. And, um, I mean, I'm Italian 90 was the first tournament I watched, and um, again that Scotland were there and it was to be accepted that Scotland were there and it, you know, and everyone was quite pleased that they were there. I remember having a pennant in my room which said uh, World Cup 90, five in a row. I had some similar. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Five World Cups in a row for Scotland and you took it for granted that they were at the tournament but it was all, again, you look back at it now and you think, what the hell was it for? Because they get to the they get to the World Cup. It's great, Scotland of the World Cup. Here come the Tartan Army. They're a wonderful bunch of fans. You, you get a patronising pat on the head, and off you go when the group stages are over. That's basically what it was, and it always has been as a Scotland supporter. And I think ultimately there's a new generation of players and a new generation of fans now who maybe don't, who haven't watched the national team, who should be expecting so much more than that. Whereas I think the old Tartan Army and I might be going on to shaky ground here. The the older members of the Tartan Army were a lot of the time were just glad to be at tournaments and not expecting progress. Now, football fans demand success. They demand to see their team do well. And if not, they get very irate about it. And it wasn't that long ago that we had apathy around the national team for one reason or another. Now the national team is at a major tournament. 
I think that there's there should be a degree of expectation for them to do well. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Yeah, I mean, see, see when you're talking about, um, you know, like Scotland fans accepting, you know, um, just being at tournaments, etc. After the Italian 90, there was a bit of apathy, and so much so that only 12,000 went to the first United qualifier against Romania. Now, there was a lot of reasons why that, um, mainly the fact BBC had the live game that night as well. But there was a lot of discontent towards the team because of the way we lost that game to Costa Rica. Um, and I know we beat Sweden we were, and we were a little unlucky against Brazil and we did the Scottish thing where we went out in goal difference and we were one of the two worst um, third place sides when four of them could have went through and just that's like, why I have a fear for this tournament as well, just like four years before how could you, act, if Scotland could find a way not to qualify, they did so in so many different ways yeah, I Daniel Fonsex is a yeah, 94th minute day. goal, I think it was, or something like that. Why? You know, apathy, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not surprised. There should have been apathy. But Scotland had made a habit of qualifying. And in part, maybe because, you know, the Soviet Union hadn't broken up at that point. Now they're Yugoslavia. So there wasn't an extra dozen teams to take our place. Um, <laughs> there's a lot to be said in that regard as well. But... That there were good players in those days, great players that we look back on, and you know, Dalgleish, Sunas, Strachan, um, Willie Miller, Alec McLeish. These were great players. Mo Johnston was one of the best strikers in Europe around about you know the, the turn of the the eighties and nineties. But these, all these guys failed. All these guys failed. When you look back on it now, and I do wonder whether or not the hopefully this this is this is the chance for a cultural shift. This this is a massive moment this year. And this opportunity, and again, there's a pretty good chance that third place might get you through in this group. So what an opportunity! And you're playing two games at home. So come on, if you're going to do it and get through and get over that hump, now is the time to do it. It was actually interesting watching, re-watching England, um, Scotland in, in '96 at Wembley. England, I mean, Scott, England weren't particularly good. And, and that match, you know, it's like football memories, I think, can be quite selective. We can think that maybe, and, and I know they blew the Dutch away in the next match, but really, to be honest, England had really laboured, I believe, in the first match and then were quite poor against us in the first half. And then Venables made a half-time substitution. They brought on Redknapp for Stuart Pearce. And that, that kind of changed the balance of the game and, and McManaman started running at us. And England were admittedly better, probably edged it on the day. But, but I mean, that rewatching that, I must say it was DVD straight off after Gascoigne's goal. It was like so, oh my goodness. I mean, just it's that double whammy football moment, isn't it? When you miss a penalty and right up the pitch, but it, when the stakes were at their very highest as well, that, that, that must be the most crushing moment and almost in. The Scotland national team has. But in terms of the Scotland England game, you know, um, do you think there's any? Um, maybe we're clutching straws here slightly, but in terms of the weight of expectation, which is always going to be in England, whatever sport they play at, and they bring it upon themselves, in my opinion, and, and the, the the royal media, sorry, Charles, that they kind of bring that, which you know could could work in our favour, but. You know, again, England's squad is kind of relatively young as well. Do you think that's you know a good thing from their point of view that they don't have that experience? And again, they're, they're young, youngish kind of team like Scotland, all technically very able, and some playing at a very, very decent level. I mean, 
you know, there's always that weight of expectation. You think because they're slightly younger, they, that's maybe not going as much a factor for them in a good way for them, but maybe a bad way for us that they can just go and play their game and hopefully make a great game overall. But interesting, the kind of psychology, maybe we can make more of that than actually is the case. But certainly in the past, there's been a huge weight of expectation upon upon England, which we would try psychologically if we could to, to, to use to our favour. I don't know if there's anything in that or whether that sort of dynamic's changed at all. I think there, I think there is. There's always going to be a weight of expectation in England, especially if they're playing a tournament at home. But this this group of players, a lot of the, a lot of those players, three years ago reached the World Cup semi-finals in Russia, where they were slightly isolated from the you know the the, the press, the media that they're going to have on them over the next four or five weeks. Um, but again, you're talking about players who are playing Champions League, who are playing at the top end of the Premier League, and who experience pressure week in week out. So. You know, if you're, you know, if you're a, if you're a footballer growing up, you know, is it is it still your goal now in the in the 21st century to win the World Cup or the European Championships for your country? I'm not sure it is as much as go out and win the Champions League or the Premier League. I think it's an equal an equal goal in many players' eyes. And you know, I mean, you look at I mean Mason Greenwood, for example, has uh, withdrawn from the England squad because he's not fully fit to focus on Manchester United. International football is perhaps not so sacrosanct now, and I don't think that that means that these England players don't want to play for England. By a, a stretch, they want to win the tournament, and I think it would be it would be massive for the, for the country for, for from a UK perspective if England went on to win the tournament. I think they've got a very good shot at it. Um, but I don't think they're going to be bowed by the expectation or worried about that because they dealt they dealt with the pressure to a certain extent in Ru- in, in Russia and it was only when they got to the semi final and went oh god we're one match away from the World Cup final here you could see them tense up against Croatia in that game um, if they get off to a good start ironically against Croatia in the first game. Um, you could see them going on a run. And that's why I think from Scotland's perspective, that game at Wembley, you just want to get in, get out without getting a hiding, in my view. If I'm being brutally honest, I think that the players will go in and they'll be quite con- comfortable in that environment. A lot of the players have played at Wembley, the Scotland players, so they're comf- and they'll know a lot of the England players because they play against them in the Premier League or with them. Some of them are teammates. But I don't think that game should be the focus. I don't. It will be our focus as fans, but I don't think that that is the most important game in the group by any stretch. Sense I'm getting from fans, and maybe you, you've always spoken to more fans than I have, Charles. But the sense I'm getting is the focus seems to be more on these two games at Hamden. The England game is almost like a free hit. I, I don't, I'm not a big fan of the same free hit because I still I believe you always have a chance in a game, but. It's the one that we've got the least pressure on. England are by far the favourites for the group. Um, the two games for us are against the Czechs and um, Croatia. That's what will determine whether or not we qualify. And the vibe I'm getting from you know, fellow Scotland fans is that the England game is, a, is just a, um, an experience. The other two are key to whether or not we qualify. The, the, the two most important games in Group D are going to be the Czech Republic game against Scotland, um, the first game. If, if you've got to, if you if you've got any aspiration to qualify, you've got to take something from the first game. Whatever that is, mm-hmm. the draw. If it's a, so, be it. If it's a win, brilliant. The other most the other crucial game in that group is when Croatia and the Czech Republic meet for me, um, because no one will be focused on that. Everyone's going to have their eyes on Wembley, but it kicks off at five o'clock that day, and 
if that game ends in a draw, oh my goodness, the door's open for Scotland. Because realistically, I think you would expect England to win all three games at Wembley. I mean, their record at Wembley is formidable. So if they're going to win all three games, then and then the two the other two teams in the group split the points. What a chance for Scotland. What a chance. So that for me is probably the key game in the entire group is when those two teams meet at Hampden Park on match day two. Nobody knows how that's going to go. And from Scotland's perspective, the fact they've played the Czech Republic recently is 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 very useful. We don't know how we're how how they will go against Croatia. And Croatia, you know, when you get to match day three. You could have COVID issues, you could have injury issues, you could have suspension issues, you just don't know. So they've got to get off to a winning start with their best team and then you see how things go pan out. But that game that game at Hamden between Croatia and the Czech Republic will ultimately, I think, determine Scotland's fate. And that's a weird thing to say, yeah. but I think it's true. I think that's, that's what will happen. If there's a winner in that game, that will make Scotland's job a lot more difficult. Yeah, I would definitely agree. So that game against Czech Republic will be the first competitive um, tournament game that we'll have had since um, the 23rd of June 1998, um, which brings us back to France 98. And Neil, I'm going to bring you in here because um, you've written a, a, um, a really good book. I'm eight chapters in so far. I'm on the Brazil chapter just now. Um, it's been a good read so far. How did um, the inspiration come to write that book? Hi, thanks, John. And thanks um, for buying it and Thanks that you're reading it. It's, I mean, as I've touched on here, I was, I've been a football obsessive since the age of five years old, you know, and, and my my passion for the big tournaments goes all the way back to, to Mexico 86. The, I can remember, um, you know, the, the, getting the, the record for, for Mexico 86, you know, the big trip to Mexico. I don't know if you remember that and having the, 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 the full kit. Um, uh, I've just been absolutely immersed and 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 um, major major tournaments and and I, I suppose it's 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 as I touched on as well the the taking for granted thing you know as well like reflecting like twenty two years later as it was at the time I started the book in September weekend twenty twenty so um, had some annual leave from work. Football had all obviously been um, so. Season nineteen twenty had been halted by by COVID, you know, and and um, my, I'm a season season ticket holder football clubs, so I, I had um, been attending foot, football, but but you know the the the, the, the idea of, of Scotland at a major tournament, you know, and all those years ago having having taken it for granted, you know, and and I felt as if you know, it was such a distant memory, you know, that I felt as if, you know, it was a kind of culmination of, of events, you know, foot, football being gone, the, 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 these tournaments been such a, a different, distant memory, you know, and, and really reconnecting when football came back, you know, I don't know about yourselves, but it was almost like this, that was back, you know, and, and, and I almost, it was almost like I reconnected with, and, and don't get me wrong, I'd been attending you know, I was command season ticket holder. I watched the English Premier League. Um, obviously, watched Scotland, but not not in that way. That not in that part. I suppose that a I, I, I What I'm trying to say is, I think I probably reconnected with everything that made me love football in the first place and love major tournaments in the first place because of COVID taking that away, and and then it was back. You know, and that, and that was. 
that was what I think. When did the English Premier League come back? I think they did the whole project restart, which I've, I really didn't like the name of, to be honest. I thought that was, that was quite cheesy. But project project restart, uh, I think, was June seventeenth, um, and then the chat. I think it was really by the time the champ, Champions League final was late, so that was August twenty twenty, and and really by that point, I, I don't know if, if any of you can relate to like video games. Um, Football. I mean, I was a massive into um, FIFA, you know, FIFA Ultimate Team. So absolutely immersed in that from, I would say, FIFA 16, 17, 18, 19, 20. So years, you know, and no disrespect, it's a fantastic game. It's, 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 it's so immersive, you know, and if anybody's into it, then then it, it's really enjoyable. And I was really, really into, into FIFA. And then it's when the real football came back, I, I just felt... I want to do something. I've always wanted to do something in relation to football. I've always had that. I thought, well, I'd do a blog. Um, that was my first idea. I thought, I spoke to my wife about it, and she says, why don't you do, try to do a World Cup blog? So that, that's quite a good idea. So I, I kind of messed around with that idea, and, and I, I bought a, a URL to, to, to do a website. for a, And it just, I thought, I'm not, I'm not really feeling this. Um, where the where where the France ninety eight idea came from? Um, uh, specifically, I'm not I'm not hundred percent sure. It, it was more just a, a question of trying to. I was thinking, can I really remember France ninety eight? I really want I really want to remember it, and and I can't really remember it. So from there, I started to research, and it was like. A lot of this, a lot of things I already had, like a big collection of magazines, big collection of autobiographies. I, I had books. I had, um, and then it started to, I suppose, look like a big jigsaw puzzle. Really, I, I felt as if I've got everything that I need here to 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 maybe do a book on France ninety eight to tell the story of France ninety eight in Scotland. Um, I don't know if you've read Archie McPherson's book, um, Adventures in the Golden Age. I think it's called Adventures in the Golden Age. Yeah. Um, fantastic. Um, he um, recollects his, his, is it six tournaments? It would be the five five in a row, as yeah. Charles was saying, and then Miss 94 and then 98. So he, he was at all of them as a correspondent commentator. France 98, he was there as a, for Eurosport. His book is just wonderful. Um, started reading and really having a think went away away off on a tangent about but I realized that um it was the 51st FIFA Congress and it was set set blatter got um elected just before France 98 so as part of this so Havalanche stood down and blatter was elected you know and I start I went down the rabbit hole with I read like everything there was to read about FIFA and um you know, and, and, and suppose we could now say the dismantling of Blatter's administration, and, and, and there's, there's so much out, out there. The FBI um, <laughs> ultimately dismantled Blatter's administration, didn't they? So we, we don't we can say for pretty certain that, that, that it was a corrupted administration, but just so. And so then I went into the CBF in Brazil, you know, you know, and it, it was just it was just um, so, so so interested, you know. And, and Brazil, I looked at Scotland, Scotland's group just. You know the, the the group that they were in just came to life, you know with with Brazil being in there, 
and also Norway um, um, with Eggie Olsen, you know, and, and, and I started looking at, the more I read, the, the more I thought this is the moment for this because there is also season 97, 98, I felt there was so many parallels with 2021, you know, you had, you had the Rosier, you had um, Rangers had nine in a row and they were going for 10 and, and Celtic under Vim Jansen were trying to stop um, Rangers. It, it, it was so similar to what was going on the other way around this season, you know, and, and, um, and then obviously, I don't know if you remember, Vim Jansen, he sensationally left Celtic quit. I, I don't know 100% moment on there, but, but um, Edgar Olsen was getting touted for the, the job, uh, Celtic job. So there was a lot there around Lambert and Burley and it just one thing fo followed another and, and, it, and it just became, it, it became so interesting that, that, that it, was all there, it was all there for me, you know, and, and um, at the process wise, I suppose, um, the process, I wrote four chapters and then I sent I sent the chapters to to my dad, who's like a fellow fo football obsessive, um, and he reads a lot as well. And, and I felt gave me quite an objective. I felt as if my dad would probably tell me if you know I still had a bit to go and and, and maybe rethink this. And he said I really like this, so I thought, well, you know, I'll keep going. You know, and every time I finished the chapter, I would send it to my dad. Um, I started reading a, a bit about um, self-publishing. So the book is actually self-published and I started to kind of parallel to writing the book, getting really, really interested in the self-publishing process um, as well. That, that um, by the time I got to 40,000 words, uh, the book is 65,000 words, by the time I got to 40,000, I, I was set, I was going to self-publish it because I wanted it out before um, Euro 2020. So I knew that way I would be controlling my own time scale. Um, but I wanted it to be of of a pub published of a published standard. So I, I learned through YouTube different different articles and things um, that you know, two, two of the fundamentals for self publishing would be hire an editor, a, a proper professional editor, and hire a cover designer as well. And like like get your get your cover right, get a get a license and image. So. I don't know if you've heard of a website called Reedsy, R-E-E-D-S-Y. They have no stake in my book or anybody else's. They are a network for free, so freelance um, editors and cover designers will, will, will put themselves, make themselves available for hire on Reedsy. And then one of you authors like me will go in there and just search football and... Um, People who are, are doing cover design or editing books with a football CV will, will appear on Reedsy. And I came across two guys, brilliant guys. The editor's name was Alex Hazel and the cover designer's called James Popple. And these were two guys who I, I, I pitched my idea to. So I sent my first chapter, which is called The Largs Mafia. It was just called Chapter One at that point. It was I sent that to Alex and he got back to me and he says, yeah, I, I would I would work with you, and, and and it became professional at that point. You know, you put your bank details into Reedsy, and then you go into contract with these guys. You know, likewise. So Alex's background was he's edited a book for he edited one of George Best's books, um, Ricky Hatton, the boxer. Um, 
Jeff Sterling, I think, has one of his books or his book. So um, his his knowledge of football, his comments that, that eventually what, 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 what he did with me and for me was just a wonderful experience. And likewise, James, he has he had designed the the official illustrated history of Manchester City. So uh, I just I thought this if this guy gets back to me, superb. So he came back to me with all these ideas, you know, and, and about my cover. He went, he suggested using um, a font, a usable font, um, like the the obviously the, the numbers on the, the back, the names and numbers on the back of the shirt, and and different things, you know, like he tried to make the that that detail there with the with the, with the kind of. You know, I'm holding this up to a screen. It's a podcast, and so nobody can can see can see it except yourselves. But um, I so, so come back come back with me come back to me with some great ideas and really my, my imagination from the, from then on it just that pushed me from kind of forty k to sixty five k. What what were these guys on a deadline? The deadline being I want this out for for Euro twenty twenty and yeah, I mean it just came together. The matches themselves, I, I loved. Um, the, the, so I, I must have done, I think I did about 30 pages of notes for each of the three matches. So, so the Brazil, Norway and um, Morocco. I studied every passage of play. These games are there, as you probably know, if you want to search hard enough on, on the internet and stream them. Um, they're there. And whether they should be or not is a different question, but they're there. So... And I wanted I wanted it to not, for my memories, not to be selective anymore. I wanted to really... Because obviously, the understanding was Scotland played well against Brazil, they played well against Norway, and then they blew it against Morocco, and that is kind of what happened. But I wanted to make sure that 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 that, that I judged that for myself. So I went through the I went through the matches and um, tried to you know, bring them back to life, I suppose, with words. And it was just just a wonderful experience. I I, I loved it from from start to finish, and. and and now I'm here trying to promote it. I don't have a publisher, so thanks, John, for that. that I suppose that's the one de- deficit, really, from doing the self-publishing thing. You don't have the might of a publisher behind you to. So I come onto Twitter with no followers, and I've got a, a free chapter that I wrote um, on my website. So I built a website too, and I've got a chapter there about the C- CBF and result that just didn't fit in the book. But it's edited to the same standard. I put it through Alec the editor, uh, and paid for that to be edited too, and it's like a, a freebie on my website, it just didn't fit in the book, it's just Brazil was so in, interesting, you know, as you started to dig, so yeah, that's about about the size of it. Yeah, well, I wouldn't have known it was self-published until you told me that, to be perfectly honest, it's, um, it's been a good read so far, as I say, I've still got a few chapters to go, but I won't spoil for anyone, if anyone wants to know what happens in the book, buy it. It's on Amazon and it's a good bargain as well. Um, but it's interesting. Um, we're talking about um, tournament build-ups. I don't think there's ever been a tournament build-up like uh, from this country's perspective than France today because we had Brazil in the opening game. We were kicking off the World Cup against the World Champions, and it was like six months just full on. Um, despite what was happening domestically, well, there was a lot of focus on this Brazil game. Um, and it's funny you mentioned Yel Havelange. That start of the game. Because the, the two teams came on and then Havland was speaking, then Jacques Chirac was speaking, then there was the French National Anthem, then some girl came on to talk about the FIFA Code of Conduct crap or whatever, and then it was the two National Anthem. So they were standing on the pitch for a good 10, 12 minutes before um, they even got to go and kick off, which caught us cold at the start, I think. 
You were well, not allowed to warm up either. Aye. aye. Well, that was well, safe for both teams. They also chose to go wandering around on the pitch in kilts beforehand, mind you. So, you know, you, you make your own misfortune up to a point, I think. I mean, who's... I, I appreciate Craig Brown was, uh, you know, a patriotic guy, but that was not a good idea either. Imagine, can you imagine Steve Clark even contemplating that nowadays? Not a chance. It's all about you're in the zone, you're in the bubble now. So I remember we all, uh, see, I'm a little bit younger than you, Graham. I remember we all legged out of school. We were told specifically not to, and I was in fifth or sixth year at school, and the headmaster told us specifically, do not leave school to go and watch that game because it was a four o'clock kickoff, if I recall, or five o'clock. Four or a half, four, I think it was. It was uh, four. Yeah, a four or five o'clock kickoff uh, in France. Anyway, and literally the school emptied at quarter to three, gone. Everyone left half an hour before when it was just a, the bell was due to ring at 20 past three or 25 past three. There was nothing they could do because that was, again, all that the nation was talking about. And... Yeah, it's uh, it, yeah, it, it's it's crystal clear, and I don't remember much about the Norway game from that from that tournament, but I do remember watching the evening game and Jim Layton basically having a mare against Morocco, and that was that was the point where I felt actually I do remember feeling after that game, why are we crap, and why are we repeatedly crap when it comes to big tournaments, and that I'll be I, I, that that team peaked halfway through that Brazil game, for me. Um, you know the Craig Brown team fell to bits just after that because they should have beaten Norway. They were good enough to beat Norway, and they didn't take their chance. And ultimately, that cost them. Um, and they were well beaten by the Moroccans. But that game, that tournament, all revolved around again the Brazil game, and it was because Brazil were that good, and because Ronaldo was the greatest player in the world, the, the original Ronaldo or Fat Ronaldo, as we all call him now. Um, so, you know, before the imposter Ronaldo came along a few years later. <laughs> Um, the, so, yeah, that that was that was it, it was a great it was a great time to be a Scotland fan. That tournament, I had better better memories and better hopes. I think ahead of that tournament than I did for Euro '96 because it was Brazil. There was a bit more glamour to it. I mean, Morocco are a pretty glamorous team as well because we didn't know what they were going to be about, and everyone fancied not, not Scotland against Norway, even though Norway bizarrely were ranked number two in the world at that time, uh, if I recall. So. Yeah, it was uh, it, it was a strange again a strange summer, but I, that was when I it finally hit my consciousness that Scotland are not very good, and we were not very good for twenty years after that. Yeah, I mean it was um, in that Nor- that Morocco game. I remember the build up was all about uh, the Moroccan keeper isn't very good. Let's aim balls in towards him, and it turned out it was our goalkeeper has a bit of a mirror. I mean that image of the set um, when he. Pushes the ball up in the air and then he's scrambling to get the ball. This made it 2 0. And I just remember me and a couple of mates in the house, every one of us collectively just put our heads in the sofa and head and hands. It was it was just that gun. Because that was the moment we realised we were out. And you can't put glorious failure on us for this tournament um, because we were bottom at one point. The glorious failure, for those who like the term, belonged to Morocco because they were, they were the best team in that group, apart from Brazil, obviously. But um, they blew it against Norway as well. Yeah, arguably the, 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 the worst second, like the worst team went through because you're, you're, you're setting Brazil aside, aren't you? Like Craig Brown did beforehand and saying they're going to win the group. And yeah, Morocco, eh, Norway were, were, were the poorest of the other three. I think we were better than Norway. 
and Morocco were definitely better than Norway. But they were pragmatic. It was Eglo Olsen. He was he was a it was he played one tactic and, and and he believed in it and he was he was pragmatic. It was direct. It, it worked. It didn't always work, but they just they just did it again and again and again. Diagonal ball and Brown. He he, he, try, he tried to defend it. I mean, and he did in the main defend it. We fell asleep in the forty sixth minute of the the Morocco game, and likewise we fell asleep in the forty sixth minute of the. Uh, of the Norway game rather, and then they did the same thing against Morocco. We lost two 46-minute goals, so that's something that I hadn't really taken a mental note of. That was a fabulous tournament, though, um, yeah. for good football. Um, and I think the only tournament that's ever really compared to it since was probably the World Cup in Germany in 2006. But there were some terrific football played by some really good teams. I mean, Chile were a great team and then got absolutely battered, if I recall, in the second round by Brazil. And Brazil should have won that tournament because they were by far and away the most talented team in the tournament and then obviously collapsed in the final. Um, and the Dutch were a great team in that tournament as well. And France basically fluked it halfway, you know, halfway through the tournament. Zidane carried them in the final, you know, up to the final in some respects. And they managed, they got through, they won the World Cup without a striker. It was utterly bizarre. Um, and again, England flattered to deceive and all the focus was on England. But there were some really good football players, some top players um, kind of really shone. And I do remember it being a really attractive, exciting tournament to watch. And there's not been, there have been a lot of major tournaments we've had since then. I can only think, a year 2004 and the World Cup in 2006 were good attacking, exciting tournaments. And I can't really recall much good football that's been played at major tournaments since that. Actually. Yeah, there's probably been more sort of contrasting styles, whereas now not everybody plays exactly the same, but there's a there's a there's a sameness about watching games. Maybe it's partly because we're saturated by football. You kind of used to seeing it, the ball gets played round from back to front, from left to right, and back round again, they recycle it, and then oh, there might be a shot maybe once. Every half an hour, if you're lucky, you know. So, uh, you know, in terms of the style of football, I suppose it's, a, it's another podcast in itself. How football styles have changed and evolved, but there is a kind of sameness and um, about watching football at times. And hopefully, that's not going to be the case in the Euros, obviously. But I, 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 I kind of get what you mean, Charles. There were some some great players and more contrasting styles, which made it exciting in a different kind of way. Um, not there's any not any unique individuals anymore, but there's a similarity between how people are playing what more teams are kind of pressing that was that's never a term we've used in the last play five years or so um you know and, and recycling the ball and going left to right and back to forward and say eventually some I, I joke with my son now is anyone anyone going to take a shot now I mean you don't all have to walk it in the net these days you know it's like it might be pretty in the eye and it's great in the training ground but somebody just take a shot I mean come, that's, that's go back to like she Adams earlier on you know um, uh -huh. you know, he strikes me a guy who will look for an opportunity for us and, you know, t literally take a chance, you know. And, uh, you know, for me, that that's what you want in your team. It might go in, it might go in Rosette, but, you know, let's take a chance, you know. Um, you don't have to score the perfect goal. Um, although, obviously, the goal we were talking about earlier on, Kevin, this which was, in a sense, almost like a perfect goal. It was well worked. And Robertson put an absolute classic Robertson cross and obviously more of that in the next couple of weeks. But... Um, I agree the kind of interesting in the contrast of styles over the decades and arguably to some extent some better football maybe or maybe that's through roasting spectacles when you're a 14 year old 
Yeah, and it's been, I mean, 23 years um, we've had to, we, we never thought it would take this long to, for us to get a major tournament and for all the travelling the Tartan Army have done and for the full houses you've um, been covering, Graham, um, from the Tannoy. Um, we're all then consigned to sitting in the house, or should have been, sitting uh, watching um, the game in the house on our own um, or with our immediate family watching um, Penalty Shout. Um it was just a, an absolutely surreal night, but an incredible one from David Marshall, which became so bizarre that, um, you know, Baccarat became popular overnight for some reason. That's just the Scottish way. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, yeah, I, I mean, thinking of, I mean, I'm keep saying I'm remembering things from decades ago, but I mean, I think for me, that, that image of David Marshall just standing there waiting for the official okay, that was, mm. was it over? And that, that is an image that will last for me in, 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 in the recent past, is that, that kind of slight surreal moment, is this actually happening? Which I suppose is a good way of summarising we have actually qualified for Euros. And that, that look, with somebody have painted that a million times, that look and made a great poster of it. But for me, that, that, was, that, was, that was just a great moment when the, ca- the camera captured that moment and he looked at the referee or the assistant referee. Um, but no, that, 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 that is my abiding actual visual memory of, of that of that night. It was, um, I remember sitting watching on the sofa with my wife with, my wife with a rather large glass of red wine uh, and my colleague Luke was obviously out in Serbia uh, at the game. One of the few privileged individuals to be present in the stadium. And um, I, I do remember watching it and thinking... They've got a good chance to actually to, to win this game in 90 minutes. And this was before the performance. And ultimately, they actually should have won the game in 90 minutes. And it was probably the most complete performance that they put in until last night, which is a weird thing. Because I think under Steve Clark, they have, in competitive games, they've looked quite tense. They've looked pretty... They look like, to a certain extent, that there's been a bit of weight on them uh, in a lot of these competitive games over the last 12 to 18 months. I think the Austria game is a good example of that. They did look like they were bowed by the weight of expectation because it was the start of a new qualifying campaign. But in the in the final in, Ser- in the playoff final in Serbia, they, they, they appeared to be relaxed because they were perhaps the underdogs and then maybe the Serbs were missing the crowd. The Serbs looked tense. The Serbs looked like they were completely overawed by it. And watching the penalty shootout, I, I was pretty confident that they were going to score their penalties. It was just a question of could Marshall save one? Because I'd, I'd been, and you, you, Graham, were the same. We were at the semi-final against Israel at Hamden. And that was unbelievably tense, terribly tense. And you could not hear a pin drop. Um, when Kenny McLean stepped up, I remember to to, to score the, the you know the, the kind of fifth penalty, I think it was, or the fourth penalty for Scott. The only thing you could hear was Ian Crocker, the commentator in the stadium, yeah, yeah. yelling McLean. Everybody in the in the stadium was silent, and that was appalling. So I, God knows what it felt like in Belgrade, sitting in the stadium, which was empty, watching it. Um, but I always had a confidence that they would win the shootout when it went to that. I was concerned they wouldn't last. 120 minutes. So, but again, I, I go back to what I said at the start. This is a different bunch of players, not scarred by previous failures, not tarnished by the weight of history and expectation. They, they, they've scored, they've got a perfect record in penalty shootouts and they're confident enough to just step up and do it. There's no worry about it. I think a lot of that has got to do with Steve Clark, who just lets good players play. Gordon Strachan, I remember, said to me once, 
you know, as a manager, there's only so much you can do. Ultimately, you're you're judged by good players, and it's all about players playing to the peak of their level. And if you've got good players, you'll be fine. And his eternal frustration was he didn't have enough good players in his squad five years ago. Because um, he 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 could well have taken Scotland to a major tournament, I think, you know, give or take one or two things. And now they've got a bunch of players who are playing well and are confident in their ability to step up in a pressurised situation and take a shootout penalty. So if it turns out that there's a penalty in, in the tournament in the next couple of weeks, you know, you would back whoever takes it to, to score. And there's enough, there's enough players there who would be stepping up to, to, to potentially take one. Yeah, no, I agree. I agree. Totally, totally. I'm a big believer in Steve Clark. You know, but having watched him... Um, Transform Coman. Um, I mean, he took over what, October 17. I think we were bottom of the league. I've not checked that. Joint we're joint bottom of the league. So, I mean, to, and then the calendar year 2018, more, more, most points, you know. Um, to me, is I'm, I'm biased, but to me, is the, the greatest managerial achievement I, I've ever witnessed because I was, I was there, you know, and I was watching it happen. I was watching. These guys just fulfil that obviously good pros, and suddenly they became the players they were meant to be under Clark, you know. And it was just, it was just the moment to be a Kelly fan. It was just, and and I was just a true believer in in Steve Clark, you know. Um, it just absolutely uh, seventy points for the calendar year twenty eighteen, which was um, more than Celtic's nine in a row team in waiting. It was more than. Um, Stephen Gerrard's Rangers, and uh, if only league titles were won in calendar years, you know. But Komarna, um you know, it was just, it was just the. So I mean, obviously, fast forward, and uh, we we lose him to the Scotland national team. So that 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 was the only that was the only bit of sweet, I suppose. Maybe that the but. Uh, Losing him, losing Steve Clark to Scotland was 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 great, you know, because I still had we st- I still had him, you know, because uh, 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 I, I just I, I've got such belief in Steve Clark as a manager, you know, just I really do. And um, don't forget when he took over, there was a lot of criticism, a lot of criticism of the performances. They got battered in Belgium. They they got a narrow win against Cyprus at Hamden. Who scored the winner in that one, by the way? Ollie Burke. You know, him. So there was a lot of criticism, and he was taking over a team that had got through the into the Nations League playoffs, but they weren't happy with the way they were playing. There was they were just not a fluid bunch. There was no progression there, and it took time to mould um, trust and belief in the system. And Steve Clark has never taken charge of a friendly until that game against the Dutch a couple of nights ago. Um. That's the first friendly that he's been in charge of. Every game's been competitive because the, there's no friendlies anymore in international football, really, except just before a major tournament. So every game has had something riding on it. And he's had to, he's not had a training camp or anything, really. He's had to work with what he's had and, and mold it and develop it over the last sort of two years. And I'm, I, I've got a lot of respect for him off the pitch as well as what he's done on the pitch. I mean, he's been around the block so many times with various clubs in England as an assistant coach and as a coach. Um, he's very, very shrewd, but ultimately he's working with good players. 
And those players were underperforming. And an international manager's job is to make the most of the resources at your disposal. And what he's done is he's found a Che Adams, who can be his, and a London Knights as well, who, who can be his, um, his strikers. And he's making the players who were there play better. And that's all you can ask of him. He keeps it simple. You know, with, with yeah. guys like, for example, Declan Gallagher um, is an example. You just put, put him in the team and say, just defend. No, don't look about playing um, 50-yard passes to, um, you know, Lyndon Dykes or whatever. Just just um, win a few headers and balls. Grant Hanley was much criticised by a lot of Scotland fans, myself included, for his performance in the Scotland shirt. He came in the team and, again, he was told, just do the basics, just head the ball out of danger, win a few tackles. That's, all, that's your job. Um, leave the passing to better players on the pitch. And Grant Hanley is now pretty much a nailed-on starter because his performances in the World Cup qualifiers because he was excellent in those games. So that's the sort of thing that Steve Clark does. You know, there's nothing complicated. He just says, well, that's the system. That's your job. Go do it. And he's doing it very well. But all the players are playing uh, for, for teams that are playing at a, not just a good level, but but um, performing kind of well. They're not, not at the top of the league as such, but, you know, Players like Armstrong, they're you know they're not um, you know top four, top five, but they're playing at a very very good level. Uh, as we're also playing regularly, Graham, as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah I was going to say that. Gordon Stratton struggle with is to get players playing regularly. Yeah, you say that as well about Stuart Armstrong or the guys who play in the Premier League. Stephen O'Donnell's the first choice right back. Stephen O'Donnell is playing regularly, and he's trusted by the manager because he knows him, so he doesn't have to be the guy who's playing at a high echelon of. Of, of football he's playing at a level that's good enough to get him into the team and he's able to exist and compete and you know ultimately survive because he's got good players around him so you've got to be playing regularly if you're not playing regularly you won't play for Steve Clark and I think that was one of the first things that he decided when he took over because Gordon Stratton quite often had players who were just they were fringe players one of the reasons Lee Griffiths is not going to this major tournament is because he's not been playing for Celtic. I fully believe if he was fully fit, fully focused, and he'd scored 20 goals for Celtic this season, he would be in the squad. But he's not. And Steve Clark could never take him because he wasn't fit. No, it's a good point with people playing regularly. Absolutely. No, I agree. I was just going to say, uh, Graham, it was Graham's point at the beginning, I think, that, that how he was impressed with how attacking Scotland were last night and uh, how free-flowing, I suppose, I think you know, the point you were making, we were able to get forward, I suppose, and and this, I think this, there was this idea that Steve Clark was ultra-defensive, maybe because the, the in Kilmarnock did camp in against Rangers and Celtic, and we, tend, we get really good results against Rangers and Celtic, um, if you remember, we, we, we were kind of them, particularly Rangers and Nemesis, and, and Celtic, we, we probably had our best run against as well, and uh, in, in all the years we were in the top flight, sadly we're not, <laughs> anymore but and the, and the the other matches that maybe only the command supporters were at you know it wasn't it wasn't on the tv it wasn't in sky command he, he was he was he was it he was able to get forward it was it was it was you know chris butt or whoever you know that the jordan jones he, he really did he was it was it wasn't a defensive um looking team that you were looking at ever ever but he was also able to sit in and defend and never in a 3-5-2 that was that was completely new it's, I don't think I'd ever seen that so I think that was as much a surprise to me and I, I didn't believe in that at first when I, the first couple I don't think anybody did at first when we saw it because it looked so shaky didn't it 
Well, that's the thing. I mean, Alec McLeish tried it in his first couple of games, and I think most pundits and fans were wanting it in the bin, and McLeish put it in the bin after the um, the Israel game, and we looked better um, for a couple of games under the, with the four. Um, so when Clark brought it back, it was I was worried um, because I don't see Andy Robertson as, as a wing back. There's a difference for me between a left an overlapping fullback and a wing back, um, and I think Andy Robertson's better as an actual fullback. But it's since started to mould. I mean, you see the fact that Tierney is not necessarily sticking to centre-half. He's almost like, I think a couple of weeks ago, he's almost like an underlapping centre-back, and that's actually quite a good way of putting it. Well, it's, Tierney is the key to the puzzle, really. And actually, on the other side, Hendry is the key to the puzzle, because yeah. I think Andy Robertson, he's not, a, he's, not a, he's not an overlapping full-back or a, a wing-back. He's, he's a normal full-back, you know. Uh, Andy Robertson hates the position, but he will never admit it, I don't think. Um He's doing it because he's the captain and it because it works. But the key are the two, you know, the two centre backs either side of the stopper, if you like. It's a bit like the old sweeper system. The old sweeper system, Graham will remember this because he's old enough. Franz Beckenbauer in the 60s and 70s playing out from the back as the old sweeper. And the Dutch did it as well, I think, with a bit of total football. Um, and you had the guy who'd take the ball out and pass it. And this is this is in the days when defenders defended but actually the best teams in the world had a guy who could play out from the back Tierney, Tierney can drive 50-60 yards with the ball on the left hand side and you've seen you've seen um, Man City do it with uh, with with Pep um, with their full back who cuts and comes in the midfield and creates the extra man Jack Hendry can do that too as we saw with his goal so you know good players are ultimately able to play a multiple of positions and Scotland are fortunate that they've got two formations that they can use and work. And you wouldn't, you could argue that there's a there's a lot of players, bar maybe the the stoppers, the old-fashioned centre halves, and maybe Dykes up front. Everyone can play in different positions. Forrest can play a wing back. You can play as a winger. You can play as a striker. Fraser's the same. Um, and the midfielders they can all interchange. John McGinn can play deep. He can play in as a number ten. Um, and Tierney could play anywhere on the park. But, I, I fully believe he'll be in... I think he'll, if, if Scotland make progress, he could be in the team of the tournament, and Arsenal have got an absolute um, fight on their hands to hang on to him, because he's a fabulous footballer. But, but we've, the, we've known that for five, six years since watching him at Celtic. But the thing about Tierney is he's, 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 he's very raw, and he's very simple in what he does. I mean, he, 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 he had one run last night, and it was just simple pace... An aggression, nothing too fancy to get past somebody, and there's nothing beats pace. I mean, you can have all the tricks in the book, but if you've got a bit of pace, a bit of determination, just going past, and people are fearful because you'll either sprint right past them or invariably might, might get a free kick or, or a corner or whatever. So, you know, he's, I think people will be fearful of him in terms of that, just that raw pace. And if we can create the opportunities where he comes forward and you know, him and Robertson have got some uh, agreement as to whose turn it is and all the rest of it. Uh, but, you know, it's certainly a, a great asset. But for me, it, without make it sound too simple, it's, it's raw pace. And, there's you know, that is as much a threat as anything else for us. You know, somebody's getting forward and Robertson for the, for the second goal. In a sense, quite simple. Bit of pace, overlap, crossing the box. Thank you very much. I mean, you know, and I think it's getting the best out of those players and creating the system that, you know, those simple things, it's the simple things done well, which is a good metaphor for, for life. You know, I do the simple things well. Um, 
that's our unofficial motto to our business. Do the th- simple things well. Um, but, you know, I think in terms of Tierney, uh, there's not much about him. You know, in a, a sense, you know, I'm sure he can do a few keep-uppies, don't get me wrong, but, you know, the, it's just that raw aggression and will to win. Uh, and, I, and I think the rest of the squad and the team kind of feed off that. You know, if Tierney's in the team, it's, you know, in a sense, for me, kind of Scott Brown has that factor. Scott Brown's in the team. He's got that presence about him. And I think Tierney gives us that yeah. presence on the part. He, he learned from the master, didn't he? He learned from Scott Brown. He learned oh, exactly. And, you know, love or hate him, that, that is a... You know, if you're playing a competitive sport, is that then I think of oh, oh, great. I'm glad he's on my team today. Can I think we all remember that picking our, our, our teams at school as, as youngsters? I'm glad he's on my team today. I think Tierney, for me, uh, from what you can see without knowing the guy, has got that factor, you know. And, um, you know, as I said, I can play pretty passes and, you know, all sorts of Christmas tree formations, whatever, but <laughs> raw pace, raw aggression, that will to win. I mean, even last night he was shouting ball in the ref. You know, whatever game it is, I'm, he'll give it everything. And I think perhaps an old school uh, attribute, but I'll do for me. I think McTominay's cut from a similar cloth as well, actually. Um, and you saw that in the, as Neil, you were mentioning earlier, in the Europa League final. And he's grown in stature as, a, as an individual uh, in the last 12 to 18 months on the park and, and off it as well. And what he, when he talks, you listen to him and he does not settle for second best. And maybe it's because he's he's at Man United and there's that um, demand and expectation. And the fact that they've not won a trophy in four years means that grows and grows and grows with every passing year at Manchester United. Um, but McTominay, last time I remember talking to him, he said, it's not acceptable for us to, to just celebrate qualifying for a major tournament. It's It should become the norm. We should expect to do it. We should expect to get out of the group. And that's what you want to hear. And that's what the new generation of player wants and needs. And that's what the new generation of Scotland fan, there'll be Scotland fans out there in their late 20s, early 30s, younger than us, who don't remember Scotland at a major tournament. And they will be expecting the team to do well. And McTominay embodies that. And so does Tierney. There's also a bit I mean, but un- unorthodox, isn't it? Tierney bombing out from left centre back. It must, and then if you if you if you don't get him, there's Robertson, a world class left back, also willing to bomb on. I, I mean, I, I would imagine we're probably giving the the opposition managers a, a, a bit of a headache yeah. at this at this moment in time. Yeah, I think I think it will. It'll cause it'll cause them no end of issues. I think, and this is again, if you're watching the top top teams. The ta- it's all about tactical evolving and overloads. And I mean, Man City changed their tactics. For, I'm talking about Man City because they won the Premier League and probably should have won the Champions League. Um, they're, the, they're probably the best team in Europe and they changed everything at Christmas. And Pep, you know, Guardiola, he, he, he looked at his formation and changed it to create overloads and, and mismatches. And that is a mismatch for Scotland. And Steve Clark's been able to do that because he's got two world-class players playing essentially in the same position. And actually, if you want to look really deeply, look at what um, Gareth Southgate's done. He's picked four right-backs in his squad. And you can see them doing a similar thing in terms of the way that their formations are going to change when it comes to England. And, you know, we, we don't want to focus on England, but you pick the best footballers, regardless of the position, you get them in the team. And then you find a way for them to operate and coexist in such a way that the team's going to do well. And, you know, the old adage was, all right, you pick the formation and then you pick the team. 
Nah, you pick the best players and then you work out how to get them in the team and make make them deliver a performance and a system that's going to be successful. That's the way you got to do it. Because we're not we're not we're not a big nation with loads and loads of world class players. We've got a handful. So let's get them on the pitch. Pep yeah. Patterson has spoken. <laughs> well, at least it puts end um, to the debate, Tierney or Robertson. We've, found, we've finally found that formula. We've been searching for the last four or five years, so um, let's uh, keep that going. So, um, we'll obviously, revisit the tournament a wee bit more in detail in a moment, but um, I want to speak to Graham first, mainly about your position. So you've you've got the best seat in the house um, at Hams, and you know, um, being able to see everything, cutting. Um, play some of your favourite tunes, etc. whatever. First of all, there was at one point you weren't sure if you were going to have no fans to play music to again, but we've now got 12 and a half. Okay, it's not 50,000, it's not going to be a rock and hand in that way, but it must be good, you know, just knowing that you've got people to play music to again, rather than just the players. Yeah, absolutely, and as I'm sure uh, Charles will back me up on this one, it's a, it's a privilege to be one of the the few that you'll get anywhere near a stadium, never mind in it. And you know, we're lucky enough to see the, the kind of the qualifying games in Israel and whatnot. It was a, a great privilege uh, to be there. But in terms of the the sort of entertainment, if you like, uh, pre-match, I mean, uh, I'm sworn to secrecy, but you know, I vaguely know what's going to going to happen. It won't be anything radically different than you normally expect uh, pre-match international matches of of this stature, but. There'll certainly be a, a kind of wee bit of a, a pre-match show. Um, and, you know, my view in terms of, you know, pre-match, I mean, yeah, you can, we can debate all day and all night what music's the best music to play. Some people have a big thing about there should be no music uh, after a goal. I mean, a goal music's relatively new phenomena, but, you know, I, I think it's here to stay. And, um, you know, many people have viewed, well, if Scotland score, just let the Hamden Road do its thing, whether it's fifty thousand or twelve thousand. I personally wouldn't have an issue with that. I'm not. I'm not here to say music should stay, but you know, music's obviously a, a big part of it. But there's nothing beats the crowd just making their own, you know, entertainment and noise. I mean, when I first started doing the job about twelve years ago at Hamden, um, there was debates. I mean, as, as things evolved, about it became more produced and almost like a TV show. You know, and you know, some people like it. You know, the, the club teams. There's a sort of rally, rallying call. You know, at Kilmarnock, Gavin Wallace is. I don't know what Gavin's phrase is, but there's a, a kind of a Braveheart esque kind of thing. And could we do that? Should we do it? Hamden thought not. It's this. It's not about me. And I've ne- I've never done it. It's like I might have said, let's hear the Hamden roar, and that might be too much for some. Um, you know, the crowds are are in charge there, and you know, I'd far rather the crowd were, were doing that rather than me trying to sort of engineer it in an artificial way. And as I said, it's, it's, it's not about me, but you know, the music in answer to your question is really, really important. And I'm sure all the favourites will get played at some point. But uh, you know, UEFA obviously being a, a UEFA tournament, there will be a sort of standardisation to a degree as to kind of what sort of music will get played. But you know. I think that's safe to say the Proclaimers might get played at some point in, in Baccarat. <laughs> I think you can yeah. guarantee yeah, I'll, I'll, that at some point. Uh, but yeah, no, it's it's certainly evolved over the years in terms of the entertainment, if you like, pre-match and half-time and whatnot. So it'll be exciting. I, I know little bits, but I'm sworn to secrecy at the moment. Yeah, I know you can't obviously divulge on this show and I wouldn't expect you to. So, um, But, you know, I'm taking it, it would be... Um, there's going to have to be some variation in the players to what you would normally play if it was a normal Scotland qualifier, simply because of um, the fact it's a, a neutral tournament. And plus, you can't um, really play a Tartan Army playlist when Czech Republic and Croatia are playing each other on the Friday night. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, and, you know, bit of Czech Europop, but Czech Europop. 
But you know, in terms creation of, folk music, maybe. Yeah, yeah. I, I think it'll be fairly kind of, sort of mainstreamish. But in terms of you know, obviously Scotland at home, and the same will be for. I mean, I know uh, Chris Temple very well, who's the the Wembley announcer. Um, and he's done that for many years, and he's worked to various tournaments over over, over the over the decades, uh, World Cups and a lot. But you know, I think the role that we do, you do have to, and you do kind of naturally kind of go automatic pilot. And you know, if if Croatia, if 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 Croatia score, if 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 Czech Republic score, then I'll have to say as enthusiastically as if. Um, Lyndon Dykes puts one in the top corner for 20 yards, you know, so that, that just goes with the territory. But, you know, there'll be a slight uh, more enthusiastic inflection if Dykes does do as I've described. And I don't think anybody would have a great problem with that. And it would be the same for Chris if England score at, uh, at Wembley as well. Um, but um, it'll certainly be exciting. There'll be a few new kind of things to do. And uh, I'm actually going to be positioned quite near the sort of pitch side. I can sort of reveal that much. I get myself in trouble, he says, but uh, it's a wee slightly different, which, you know, I think, and Charles would say the same, the closer you are to the action, you know, the, the better it is, and you get you get caught in the atmosphere, and, 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 it, and, it, and it, in a good sense, I, I, when I first started at Hamden, it's a, if you can look at this, well, what I'm going to call the old TV picture, because the TV camera's positions has changed, but if you go back to this a traditional one, which is in the south stand, the kind of DJ box is where it's on kind of left-hand side that kind of looks over the corner flag, if you can sort of visualise that. And you're in this kind of sort of glass box, so you're kind of away from it. You can hear, it's not totally soundproof, but I kind of said, you know, carefully, I said, I, I, other events have worked, I, I feel it's better uh, for a whole number of reasons to be close to the action. You kind of feed off the crowd, you, you, you deliver in a slightly different way, you can hear your voice in its natural environment. And so... Um, we're doing that at, at, at the Euros as well, so that'll, that'll be good. You'll be kind of close to the action. You'll you'll feel the energy in the stadium, and I, I think you kind of deliver a lot better when you kind of do that as well, rather than you know behind a sort of glass box. So I'm pleased that, that <laughs> we're going to get that bit because that that'll be they say that'll make it better, and hopefully that comes across to the fans, whichever team they're supporting. That you know I'm I'm as enthusiastic as anybody that this tournament's actually taking place. So that's um, that all sounds really good. And have you been brushing up on your creation in Czech at all? Yes. Well, that, that that's you know that, that is is obviously it sounds that's arguably the most important thing. I mean, these are people's names. You've got to respect the fact and, and give it your best. I will know that I will not always get it right. I mean, that, and the same would go for the creation announcer. We'll probably not announce certain Scotland players the way that we would say it ourselves. So, but you know, you've got to. Um, do your best to get it right. And there were plenty of people there to help me get it right. I mean, YouTube's find a point to try and find somebody's goal being described somewhere so you, you hear how they pronounce it and you write it phonetically and all that. But no, certainly um, I know quite a few of the, the players' names and you know from your experience how certain you know names are pronounced in, in certain languages. Um, but, you know, that, that as I said earlier, that's arguably... Just out of respect to people, the most important thing to do is get somebody's name right and make it a, a pretty decent attempt to, to to pronounce it the correct way. Uh, and I'll have a, a, an army of people to advise me, I'm sure, to make sure I do that right. You know his uh, surname's Eastonovich. <laughs> yes, my 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 uh, my nickname. This is go back. I don't know if you guys. You'll never. I bet maybe. I don't know. Maybe I'll I'll just say the the story. But my one of my many nicknames at school was Easto. Because of a guy who wasn't a regular starter for Everton called Peter Easto, but 1983-85, and my nickname for many years was Easto, a rather obscure uh, Everton forward Peter Easto. You're not going to Google that once we finish this podcast. No, we're not. 
So, so yeah. what's so what's creation for? Um, come on, Scotland. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear. No, I don't think we'll go in there. We'll, um, it'll take up all night. Um, and Charles, you obviously have a, um, a big role to play in the, um, the tournament. Although Sky don't have exclusive rights to the tournament because obviously the terrestrial tournament. Oh, right. um, <laughs> but you'll be doing something um, in the build-up. Will it be the usual um, meeting up with the players and um, get some former player interviews and hopefully some with fans? Well, yeah. I mean, as you mentioned, you know, this is not a, a tournament that Sky have the uh, are, are the host broadcasters for. We, we broadcast every single Scotland game as a qualifier or as a friendly, and then it comes to the big tournaments. It obviously goes onto onto terrestrial television. So, I mean, as a as a news journalist, we have to report what's going on in the, in the camp day in day out. Uh, I will be heading to Darlington next week. For four or five days, the, the team are obviously in their in their uh, Southern European training camp at the moment, and then they're going to break up after the Luxembourg game for a couple of days, meet up again at Darlington, and so there'll be press every day. There'll be a media conference. There'll be training every day in the build up to the first game, and then uh, I'll be at the first game. Hopefully, uh, I've certainly I've had a couple of UEFA emails to say I'm in, so that's nice. Uh, what I'll be doing on the day, I don't know. I have no idea. I don't know how it's going to pan out. We've got a studio at Lesser Hamden just across the way from the stadium, so that's quite nice. Um, so we'll be wheeling in the guests on the day uh, of the first match, which will be very exciting. There's obviously the fan zone down at Glasgow Green, which I've not been to yet, but I think it's apparently going to hold 6,000 fans. Don't know how we're, you know, on earth that's getting allowed, given the world that we're living in at the moment, but there we go. Let's not go down that road because that might get political, but I would imagine we'll be interacting with the supporters. Um, and then the second game, obviously, at Wembley is a bit different. Um, I am not intending to be at Wembley, although that might get changed and taken out of my hands. Um, but we'll be covering again the team. There'll be pre- There's a press conference involving a member of the Scotland team from the moment that they congregate um, the Wednesday prior to the first game until the moment they're out of the tournament. So we'll hear from a member of the Scotland camp every day. So there's always news. There's always stuff going on. And then you've got the other two teams in the group who were meant to be based here in Scotland, Croatia and the Czech Republic, who have now decided to base themselves in their homeland. So I don't know whether that's going to affect things or not, but um, I would expect there's a good chance I might be at that second game uh, at Hamden Park, that crucial second game, where Dream and I will probably be speaking Czech and Croat to each other. Um, aye, um, Ovic. And, um, and then there'll be the third game as well build up to that and, and whatnot and then we see what happens beyond that and of course if Scotland do make it through then putting aside all the talk about history it's a bit of a kind of unknown as to where they might play um, because you know there's there's a, a litany of options uh, you know and I've, I've looked at it and there's a chance that they might go to Budapest or to Seville or to Copenhagen or I mean one Wembley. Of the games, Wembley possibly or well I think they have to win the group to go to <laughs> yeah. Wembley if they go at Wembley then clearly I think Steve Clark would probably deserve a knighthood um, and you know and then there's a, the chance that they could play at Hamden again so there's a lot there's a lot kind of you know of moving parts and ultimately in a, in a tournament like this a story's going to break and ultimately as a journalist you've got to chase the story you've got to find out what's going on and I am going to be interacting with the team day in day out unfortunately I know a lot of people in the team in the backroom staff um the PR guys at the SFA are pretty good. Yeah. Um, and yeah, we'll just see what happens. I, I mean, it, the beauty about something like this is 
you, you can't really, I mean, it's like the job generally, you can't really predict what's going to happen from one day to the next. But what you want is for it to be smooth. And for the, you know, from a Scottish perspective, for things to be pretty straightforward and not to be any controversy. And I mean, I, I, I was fortunate enough a couple of years ago, I have covered Scotland at a major tournament because I was with the women in France um, for three weeks, which was brilliant fun. We were in Nice and again, they played England and there was an obsession with the England game. And then they also played Japan and Argentina. Um, so I was fortunate enough to go to those games and cover those games and follow the team around France and see some some of the stuff that was going on behind the scenes. Um, and then in true Scotland fashion, they made a right royal pig's ear of it in the final game. So, you know, that was all very dramatic and exciting. Um, so I've actually done the major tournament with the national team before, albeit it was, it was the women rather than the men. So I kind of know what to expect, but... And I kind of know how restrictive it is if you're not a rights holder as well. So we'll just see how things pan out. But the emails have come through from UEFA and they're letting me into the stadium. So that's a good start. Now, are you, yeah. you going to miss out slightly on the, you know, the your friends and colleagues from various broadcasters and print and online who you, you know, you, you know well and go to various games together. Everybody knows each other. You're all in competition in a, with a small seat. And, and all that but you all respect each other I'm sure greatly but you're all looking I suppose deep down for your own little angle a little story and you know as you say is that is there that del- delicate balance between like looking for that sort of story clues, but also saying listen if we all just keep shooting about something and let's just focus on the football and, and is that ever a sort of slight moral dilemma you kind of you know let's let's there's a story there but listen that could take the focus away at all um, if there's a story there, you have to report it because it's in the interest, it's in the public interest. Um, the many years ago, well, we're talking, yeah, twelve years ago, there was an inf- infamous incident involving the Scotland team at the team hotel after a game against the Dutch. And as much as I think it might have been in certain people's interest to bury that story, it got out, um, and obviously it became known as Boozgate. At that time, that Scotland team wasn't a very good. And they weren't doing very well, and it was it was it was a classic example and a case whereby the the management had lost control of the team. Now I don't think there's any question that something like that is going to happen with this squad. But ultimately, if there's a COVID story, then we have to cover it. How's that going to affect the team? I mean, we saw the last couple of days that that is a that's going to be the biggest issue around this tournament for every team. How do they deal with the possibility of a COVID case? And I think Scotland are wise up to a point to not being based in Scotland. The fact that they're based in Middlesbrough or Darlington or wherever wherever they are is maybe a good thing given Scottish COVID laws at the moment. And this is why the Czechs and the Croats have decided to decamp back to their homeland because they don't want to take the risk of the whole team going down or into isolation. Um, So that is the biggest challenge ahead of this tournament. Um, And let's keep our fingers crossed that as few teams as possible are affected by it. But I mean, the fact that this tournament is spread across six or eight or nine countries is completely ridiculous. Utterly, utterly ridiculous. 11 It's totally, it's nuts, but that's the, that's the cards that have been dealt and that's the decisions that have been made. So you've got to control, as Steve Clark said a couple of nights ago, you've got to control what you can control and you've got to have a plan B, a plan C and maybe a plan D and E. And hopefully for Scotland, they don't have to get to plan E. 
<laughs> yeah, that would that would be very worrying if it got that far. Um, but yeah, unfortunately, Scottish Football Forums podcast as good as we are don't get accreditation, so we have no chance. So we'll be watching at home. Um, um, moving on back to the tournament, so um, we'll just start looking at wrapping things up. So chance of progression, Neil. Do you think we'll um, qualify for the last sixteen? A lot about Wales last time around, um, and reading magazines, the, the guides that we have, and the, the, Wales won the group. You know, we kind of dismissed, um, we dismissed Scotland's chances. I, I, I just think, I think somebody said it earlier on that, that um, almost as, that, as much as that was an encouraging performance last night, I think it was Charles. It doesn't, it won't mean an awful lot really when, when the when the the big kickoff um, is is upon us. If we can do. Anything remotely close, to, and I saw Wales and Longs play England. They weren't great that 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 afternoon. Um, they were beaten two one. Um, um, and look at what they achieved. So, so we ha- I think we have to use that that Welsh achievement um, in twenty sixteen as 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 anything's possible. I, I like what I saw last night, and I like the squad of players, and I like Steve Clark, and I, th- I think he got the squad right, and I think why not? We need to beat the Czechs, I think. I think it was also Charles was emphasising the, the importance of the... Um, we, need to, we really need to... And, and I don't think... I mean, Steve Clark is shrewd. I've never seen him so relaxed either. I, I mean, I could... I mean, and I've obviously been a Kelly fan, as I've probably overspoken about. Um, I've seen a lot of Steve Clark and I've never seen him as relaxed. So, here's hoping. Yeah, Steve, Steve Clark just um he's he's the ultimate poker face, really. Um, you know, he just he just doesn't give anything away, which is obviously key. Um, Graham, how confident are you that um after the Croatia game that you'll be saying and Scotland have qualified for the last sixteen? No, I, I I'm confident. I mean, um I think as as we've talked many times on this podcast, there's lots of factors going in Scotland's favour, you know, the the quality of the players. The quality of the manager, the set of circumstances we find ourselves in. Uh, you know, we talked very early on about the kind of general confidence level. Um, you know, the expectations are high, but with, with good reasons, with a bit of uh, evidence to, to back it up. So, um, you know, and the game against the Dutch, you know, okay, it was a friendly, I suppose, um, putting my education at home, they did a, an okay prelim. Hopefully they can do it in the real exam, and you know there's there's nothing there's nothing wrong with having a good prelim. It maybe doesn't count for anything, but it should give you a bit of confidence um, as well. So you know, uh, obviously they're difficult games, all the cliches, but there's no reason why we shouldn't go into that feeling that we can actually do something. And we've not said that for a very long time. Out with the fact we've not qualified for major tournament, but just in terms of going into games, feeling oh well, you know we might sit in here and play in a break, and oh well be. It's a difficult place to go to here. We're glad to get a point, and all the we're not hearing those kind of words, and I don't want to hear those kind of words. I'm going to get bored of them. It's like no, it's all a bit more positive, and everybody's pretty much positive. And Charles's colleagues are talking up positively as well, which I think really important, so that, that everybody's feeding off that positivity without you know making it just doing it for sake. But I think there's a lot of uh, genuine reasons for that so there's a lot going for us but as, as Charles said uh, you know a couple of times that the first game is so important because it is the format it is and I I think the first game will take care of itself I think the players will be right up for it I think you can't discount the Hamden factor you know even if there's only 12,000 they'll be making a heck of a noise as we all know so there's a lot going in our favour I've gone and talked it up there but 
I'm a positive person where I can, so I don't see any reason why we shouldn't be thinking, yep, start with a win and we'll take the rest of the, the games as they come. But a win is absolutely essential if we've got any real hope. So I'm positive. Yeah, and I'm with you on the, the, the views about when we've looked in the past, a draw will do. I absolutely detest that mentality. That has cost us a good few terms. That costs us three points in, in Dublin, in my opinion, costs us a place at your 2016. That's another story. Um, Charles, I mean, are you on the positive bandwagon that Scotland can make it through the last 16, either as one of the best third-place teams or even second place? I think there's a difference between positivity and realism. And let's be realistic here. Um, part of the England game and focus on the other two. Um, and ultimately, that's the way that the, I think Steve Clark, he will, not, he will not admit that. But the England game is a shot to nothing. Um, if they don't beat the Czech Republic in the first game, I don't think that that matters in the bigger picture so much as they'll know what they have to do against the Croatians. If you get a draw, you know, I mean, Northern Ireland lost two games in Euro 2016 won the third and went through as one of the best third-place teams. You can't control what happens in other groups. You can only can control what's going on yourself. You will never, as a nation, have a better chance of qualifying for the knockout stages than playing two games on your own patch. If they, if they get two draws against Croatia and the Czech Republic and go out, they've got what they deserved, in my view. Um, it's better to lose one of the games and win one of the games because then you get three points because... The odds are that actually three points is going to get you through. One win, you're almost there. Just because of the way in which four of the six third place teams can get through. It doesn't matter how they get through. If you want to create history, just find a way to do it. They will never have a better opportunity than they do now. And as I said before, this is a group of players who I think are confident and calm enough that they can believe it. It will be interesting. I thought that they were... I, I said earlier on, I thought that they had tension on them when they played Austria, which was weird. I thought they've had, the last few games they've played at Hamden, there's been a little bit of weight on them um, before and after the Serbia game when they reached the Euros. And I don't know whether or not necessarily playing at Hamden frees them up. I mean, they were fine against the Pharaohs, but you know that was a you know it was like shooting fish in a barrel. Austria are of a similar standard to the Czech Republic, who I think are of the similar standard to Croatia. Croatia are not necessarily the team they were three years ago that reached the World Cup final. So are Scotland a coming team? Are they, are they coming on the up? And are Croatia on the way down? And are the Czech Republic in a similar vein? We're only going to know. I think there's, there's three teams there who will all fancy their chances of finishing second place. Scotland, have the advantage because they're playing at home. That's the bottom line. So... If you're not going to qualify, then you can't turn around and say, oh, well, we're unlucky. You know, they've got to take the chance and take the opportunity. And Steve Clark is is wise enough to the to you know to the core that he'll he'll ram that home. That's why he's based them in Darlington. He doesn't want to be anywhere near the Scottish media and anywhere near the, the hype and the excitement around that's surrounding this country. Um they're just they're they've got to be cold and calculated. And I think that this group of players can do that. So Realistically, I think Scotland should be aiming to finish second in the group. Realistically, and it's not positivity; it's realism. And I think that they sh- if second second place would be a great achievement, but I think it is well within their grasp. I would certainly take that. Um, and who knows? We could do it. Portugal didn't get three draws. They ended up winning the thing. I don't think Scotland are going to win the tournament. Yeah. Um, so if Scotland aren't going to win the tournament, who do you yeah, guys think will? 
Yeah, they need to score goals. They've got to score goals. Uh, they've failed in the past at major tournaments by not scoring goals. I would far rather that they went out of the tournament scoring a blaze of goals. And they're set up to score and set up to play attacking football. So let, let's bring it on. Yeah. So who do you think will win the Euros if it's not going to be Scotland? I would say, I think England have got a very good shot at it. Um, France, I think the favourites, and I think that's fair enough. Um, but England have got a bit. If I was to put a bet on, I would go to a bookmakers outside of the United Kingdom and put a bet on England. I wouldn't put a bet on England in this country because everyone would be lumping it on. It ought to be terrible. But I don't bet. But I would go and put a, I'd put money on England because it's all stacked in their favour. And then, again, it's a simple thing. You know, France should have won the Euros in 2016 and bottled the final and they were playing at home. They had a great chance to win it on their own turf and they, they made it. You, you cannot underestimate the power of home advantage in major tournaments. So, I'd, agree, I'd agree with Charles. I think England, for once, and we mentioned a lot about the pressure or, or not that they may have given their squad and expectations. But I, st- I think this year, um, I, I would say they are, uh, given the players they've got and the, the way they play, and they're, again, they're, they're always likely to score You know, a, a couple of goals. Uh, I, I would put them as uh, up there as well. A simple but boring answer. I'm sorry, John. Neil? Yeah, my head was in exactly the same place. Uh, uh, <laughs> England and I didn't. But in, in, I did a wee, I, I tried to think deeper about France, as Charles was saying, because I didn't, I didn't um, want to say that I thought. But uh, England were the team that, uh, honestly, I've uh, uh, been looking at their attacking options and thinking, my my goodness. But when you when you really look at France as well, I mean, the way Kante played in the, the Champions League final, Mbappe, um, uh, Griezmann, uh, I mean, Pogba. I saw France, as I said earlier, at Euro 16, and I know Pogba gets a bit of criticism, but in the flesh, what a player, you know, I thought anyway. And, and Griezmann as well, I heard somebody else speaking about Griezmann on another podcast lately and saying this is maybe one of the most underrated players ever. And, and, and I, I left that, um, I think it was in Lilo, left that match, and I had Griezmann in that very high, highest category of players I had ever seen. So the more I started thinking Coleman, Kingsley Coleman's obviously, I mean, it's just frightening, isn't it, um, the, the options that France have when you really put, put your mind to it. So uh, I'm going to say France rather than England. If you look at the groups, I mean, I was just, just having a wee look at the groups here. Um, and I mean, Italy should qualify and they're playing home games from Group A. So they should qualify. I think Italy could go far. Yeah. Group B is a bit of a toss-up, and Belgium are are in the in that group. And Belgium have got a bunch of stars in there, but I'm not convinced in Roberto Martinez to be able to actually forge a team that can win a major tournament. And then the Dutch, we saw them last night. Not exactly impressive, even though they won the Nations League um, not that long ago. Um, and then England are in Group D. Group E, you've got you've got Spain, who are the the, the team who should win that group but this is not the Spain team of maybe the last 5-10 years Spain will, will do fine but I'm not sure that they've got the firepower and then Group F is an absolute stinker because you've got Portugal, France and Germany one of those teams could potentially drop out and I think it's between Germany and Portugal for the runners up spot um, there's not an outstanding international team out there beyond France and England that you would say oh yeah they could go really really close and England have beaten a lot of these teams. England went to Spain not that long ago and won. So I think for people to 
to, to talk of England as potential winners is absolutely viable here. I think that they've got a great chance. Well, I did the Euro Projector thing on um, UEFA's website, and I do have England get going to the final, but I've got Belgium beating them. I think this is a great Belgium team. I think they're ready to peak. I think they've had they've been close on a couple of occasions, especially in the the World Cup there. I just think France had a wee bit more know-how from the experience of 2016, etc. But I think this Belgium team, the power that the the players that they've got, the amount of caps that they've all got between them, I think this is their time. Um, but I have an I have a hunch that Turkey could go very far in this competition. They've got a very good team. Beat Bel um, beat uh, Holland and um, Norway in, in March there, and they beat France in qualifying. I think they could be a surprise. I don't think they'll win it, but I think they could be last eight, last four. Quite possibly, but we'll wait and see. Anyway, guys, thanks very much for um, your time. I've just got a few quick fire questions to round off. Um, so, um, what's your um, respective beer of choice going to be during the Euros? Or wine? Oh, definitely wine. <laughs> a nice Malbec, hopefully with a steak. <laughs> it's not going to be an expensive Euros. I'm not really a drinker. I normally buy it in for other people, so I don't know. Tenants, maybe. You're keeping on brand there, Neil. Well done. Uh, I, I, I've got the choice. I usually go for a, a kind of nice uh, IPA of some description. I'm, I'm not too kind of phosphate type, so I'll go for a, a nice IPA. We've been talking about playlists, etc. So, what top three um, songs would be in your Scotland playlist? Oh, dearie me. I think you even Graham Scumped. Oh right, Scot a Scotland playlist. Um, the the nineteen eighty two Scotland World Cup song was pretty good. We have a dream. All right, um, have a dream. Pretty good. I can't remember what it's called. Yeah, that was that was the year I was born. God help me. So <laughs> I, I have an excuse not to remember it. The Delamitri song in nineteen ninety eight was actually quite good. It was a bit morbid, but it was actually not a bad song. Nice. Um, and I don't know. That's, I'm, I'm kind of picking the bones out here, aren't I? Um, I'm, I'm not having Baccarat. I'm sorry. Not a chance. And that song that, that they played at Hamden for a few years after it was a goal, that, that sort of techno. Oh, appalling. I can't have that. Yeah. I'm not including that. <laughs> Absolute nonsense. No, no, no. I, I would get a bit of run rig in there. Bit of local woman by run rig. Apparently, um... The players, or certainly a couple of players I've spoken to on my podcast, have said, you know, when they're uh, uh, training at half time and run rig gets played, you know, at least one has said generally it's hairs in the back of the neck. Yeah. You know, that's thing, you know, and you say, well, okay, it's run rig. It's a bit. But, you know, if a player's saying that, we're going, we're talking about what's going to inspire the nation and the fans and Hamden Road or whatever, you know, you know, these guys are not making that up. Yeah. You know, I think it's kind of genuine. So I think we can underestimate the power of music. Uh, but no, run rig. You know, I wouldn't choose it to listen to per se. But if it does a job on the pitch, then I'll vote for it. Um, if I'm being a bit more uh, thinking of music in a sort of traditional sense, um, then Scotland songs or Scotland uh, bands. Um, then I've always liked um, Franz Ferdinand. Take me out. I think it's got a good rift at the start. Um, some people might think Deacon Blue's a bit lame and a bit cheesy, but you know, real gone kid goes along at a fair pace. Um, and uh, I don't know. Um, one tune that was played, it was before I was there. I don't know what the history of it is. And I think that before UEFA had their official walkout anthems and, and such like, 
we used, I'm still in the Royal, we used um, Faithless Insomnia. Yes. I, don't know I, used. I don't know what, what that was about, but that seemed to capture, there's obviously a story behind that somewhere, or maybe my predecessor just got lucky and played it. Oh, that's, what an inspired choice that is, big man. So, um, you know, let, let's go for a bit of Insomnia. And yes, sir, I can boogie, I suppose, has to be the one that uh, we'll hear all the time and, and uh, it was it was brilliant, obviously, when you, when you saw the uh, the backstory in the, the dressing room after the Sierra Big Game. Um, I've already referenced that terrible one for 86, Big Trip to Mexico. I don't, I don't know um, where that came from, but um, what, 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 um, I had another one in mind there. Now, I, why not Carnival de Paris, France 98? It's got the bagpipe solo in the middle. What about that one? Yeah. I, that was, Graeme, you were talking about um, you know music and football. That was what started it off, really, was Carnival de Paris. Yeah, because like every I think every team kicked the arse out of that for a while um, for gold music afterwards. That's the one that does it for me, definitely. Um, what's your favourite Scotland kit of all time? Oh, I love that Adidas one, and I don't know, and it's relatively recent. I don't know which year specifically, um, but I'm, I'm, I'm big on my kits. I, I've got two behind me, obviously, that I bought uh, during the when I was writing my book. I'm talking away from the mic now, but the, the one that they wore for qualification, um, the two those Umbro ones from from ninety seven, ninety eight. I love them. Like I love that one that they wore in qualification. It's quite like the one with the trim wise that they were, the one we've got at the moment, and I love the one that they wore at France '98. But I, I do particularly like, and I, I can't. I've got two of them. I've got the whole man there away, long sleeved. The I'm not sure what year, but it's just a, a beautiful collared. It was, I think it was the first year that we brought Adidas back. I can't. I can't. Can't quite remember. I, I, I couldn't tell you the year of it, but that 2010-12, maybe? Possibly. Um, it's all about the refreshers kit for me. You don't remember uh, the refreshers uh, kit? When, the, when they played the Zoom, yeah. when everyone celebrated beating Gibraltar 6-0. Brilliant. Yeah. I, 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 I'll, I'll, go, I'll go old school when I started getting into football when I was eight. I, I, I do like the, the 78 strip, that kind of era. Uh, the strip was nice. Uh, and and if, if I go, if I go for a left field, an away strip, so there was a huge debate, which is a 16-hour podcast in itself. But in terms of away, I do distinctly remember, I think it was 82-ish, we beat Iceland 1-0. I think Jim Betts scored, and we wore this kind of yellow strip, which was like, yellow? Mm. Where does that come from? So that's always been a bit kind of left field. I don't know if I had the kind of, you know, that stripe across the short thing, or not, it's a different yeah. era, but I remember that yellow strip thinking, they had, a, they had a nice yellow away kit recently, Adidas did, which was quite nice. Oh, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. But the, the worst Scotland kit of all time is that burgundy one that they wore in Georgia in 2000. Oh, and there's never seen it again. So let's, let's end it right there. Let's never talk about that again. Hopefully, they'll never have to wear red again. It'll be, hopefully, it's blue all the way this in the in the tournament. The one that they wore last night against the Dutch was a bit insipid, I would say. Aye. Yeah, I like that one. Um, it's, it's something might be a bit different. Um, in terms of... Um, We've all at least um, travelled at least once abroad, I would have thought, um, to watch Scotland. What's the best stadium that you visited um, for a Scotland game, except on Scottish stuff, obviously? Wow. I've never seen Scotland away, so I don't have know if not? that's okay. the best uh, I could make something up. 
<laughs> or what would you like? To... <laughs> Another way trip somewhere that involved a football team. Um, so I'll let you guys go first, and I'll make something up. Probably, actually, Brussels was great. Brussels was. I tell you what, um, Graham, you should speak to the Brussels DJ um, about the music that they play pre-Belgium games because that was bouncing. That game, that was Craig Levine's last game as Scotland manager, and we knew that the writing was on the wall as journalists walking into that ground that night. And it was basically a question of how many was it going to be, and it was only two, but it could have been a lot more. But the place was rocking, absolutely rocking, and, and um, I think that they're actually now redeveloping the stadium in Brussels, so it may not, it may no longer host games, but it had a big. Um, track around the pitch and you know this all this rubbish about oh Hamden's far too wide and you shouldn't have a track around the pitch it was full it was bouncing and it had a track around the pitch doesn't matter what the stadium looks like if you've got a, a crowd that's up for it yeah brilliant I've been I've been to I've watched Scotland in some really random places over the years some really diddy little stadiums around Europe um, and but that was the best that was the best atmosphere, without a doubt. And that was because the, the home team knew they were good. <laughs> Neil, have you uh, had the privilege of being abroad? Well, I was at the World Cup in 06, and I was, as I've said a few times, I was at Euro 16. I've been in a lot of beautiful stadiums, but unfortunately, not, not to watch Scotland. Even just to watch um, you know, a game? The, the Stade de France, I think. The Stade, Stade de France is excellent. Yeah. The new camp is also something pretty incredible to be at. If you go to the new camp, you realise you're in control. Yeah. I like the new camp, I must say. I loved um, That was 2010. Well, it's falling to bits, unfortunately. But I know. That's why they're rebuilding it. <laughs> yeah, it's quite sensational. And the San Siro as well. I've worked in the San Siro in the new camp um, for Sky. And that those are the two highlights for me, the two best stadiums that I've been in. But they're, they're old school stadiums. So... Yeah. A lot of, I mean, a lot of shiny new stadiums. I've, I've, I've fortunate enough, I've been to the new Tottenham Hotspur Stadium, which is like something out of a spaceship. Unbelievable place. And a great place to watch an, an event. Um, but watching Scotland abroad, you, you get quite often dragged when they play big teams. They take Scotland to the regions because Scotland are, a, are seen as a bit of a diddy nation. Um, I remember watching Scotland, Spain and Alicante in this Stadium that was falling to pieces, and then Scotland played Slovenia in in a friendly in Koper on the Slovenian coast. This tiny little chocolate box of a stadium—it couldn't have been any bigger than like Hamilton Ackies's ground—and you're thinking this is an international match. Ridiculous! I mean, you could have reached out and touched the players, but it had the fastest Wi-Fi at any stadium I've worked at ever. It was amazing. It was the fastest Wi-Fi in Europe. Sent a, it sent a file that was like 400 megabytes in about 30 seconds. So but I, I said, I've never seen Scotland away, but I'll, I'll, I'll shamelessly pull a story for somebody else that told me about France 98 when they, when Travis, uh, the band, were in their pomp, bringing it back to music. <laughs> uh, and uh, they, they all got to go to the game. They didn't expect to go to the game, but somebody in the management company got tickets for the game. So Travis were all at this game and they were given that somehow he... Kilts appeared, but I chatted to, to Doogie Payne, bass player, and he says he went to the game. He was he was one place, Fran Healy was somewhere else. They're all different parts of the game, but he tells a story, which I'm going to believe is true, that after the game, he says he wrote a Scotland song. And I'm saying, well, you've got to let us hear it. Why is it not recorded? So apparently Travis do have a secret Scotland song in their back catalogue somewhere. So I reckon that could be a wee secret weapon in years to come. So when we win the World, uh, World Cup, when we win the Euros, maybe Travis can bring that song out. Because apparently, 
Apparently, Dougie says it's really good, but he's probably a bit biased, obviously, because he wrote it. <laughs> well, I would hate him to write a song and say, no, it's crap, but um, <laughs> right. So, final question. Um, I hope you have done your research on this, um, although, Charles, you said to me beforehand you only opened up about an hour before we went on. Um, a six-a-side Scotland team from your lifetime, and who would be the manager? For my life yeah, from when you started supporting Scotland or following yeah, football. Okay, right. You want the, the six names and then boom. Yeah. Uh, so manager, uh, manager, 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 manager. Um, oh, good question. I could be a right. I could t- throw totally through throw curveballs in here. I'm gonna I'm gonna pick Steve because Steve's the most sensible person to manage this team. Um, I would say Gorham. At his peak, the best goalkeeper in Europe. Six aside, that's cool. so we're talking t- two defenders, two midfielders, two strikers. Uh, that would make seven. That's oh, gold. Right, okay, one defender though. Right. John Collins. John Collins is the best midfielder I've, I've seen play for Scotland. Culture as you get, as you can, as you can get. Um, McFadden, John Collins. Um, Barry Ferguson at his peak Scott Brown at his peak so there's your three midfielders um, McFadden up front and we need a defender in there don't we probably Andy Robertson because he can play anywhere there you go I didn't have to put a lot of thought to this I went Leighton and I had um, Craig Brown's conundrum over the two goalies like Charles Um, Went for Gorham, and I can totally understand that. But I, I went for Leighton just because of his the record appearance make, maker behind the bleach. Mm. You know, just his class. You know, he, he loses marks for me for that cock up against Morocco. So <laughs> uh, I went for Leighton Henry for the defender. I just think I think like in, a, in an era now where where and, and no no disrespect to Harry Maguire, but he was eighty million pounds, was he not? And, and I think how much how much would Henry be worth at his peak? You know, um, the, when he was playing for Blackburn, uh, still in his twenties, winning the English Premier League. I mean, what a defender, you know. And and, and for me, the best Scotland defender ever. Um, he, he would be in. I don't know how much he would be worth today. Uh, when you put your mind to it, incredible Paul Lambert for me. Um, just a boy's own story and that's that's the name of his autobiography it's just what, what he did um 96 97 97 98 um what he he backed himself didn't he and he made it happen for himself so he would be and an just the way he played the game it was the final piece of the puzzle for the 98 team you know the way that central defensive midfield uh position that, that and collecting the ball from the center backs just superb collins for the same reasons is Charles just the consummate professional and a class act? And um, I've got Mo Johnston in there. Um, I can remember as a as a young boy, Cyprus at home, and the overhead kick. Um, I just and I remember he, if if you watch it back, he runs to the crowd, and I was at Hamden with my dad, and and I was behind the fit. I was there with my wee pal from school, and it was just the moment, you know, he's overhead kick. Um, Unbelievable. So for that goal alone, Johnston and Kenny Douglas just legend. It was when I was growing up, it was just like he had godlike status for me. He was all, all I mean, all time record 
appearance making and goal scorer. So that's my six. Right, I'm not going to get too tactical. I was just thinking players I could enjoyed kind of watching, or for me, always did something for Scotland. They may not have been the greatest caps, might have been the best players as such, but for Scotland, they seem to sort of turn up uh, more occasions than not, according to my memory. So um, I'll go for Craig Gordon. Uh, we'll have young Mr. Tierney, uh, Charles Thomas Thunder, I think. As well, but John Collins, I thought he always played well for Scotland. I'm going to go back a few decades. A player I always liked uh, when I first started watching football, getting into it when I was kind of, you know, late primary school. John Wark. Nobody would have picked John Wark. I love John Wark. He always seemed to score brilliant in that Ipswich team um, when they were at 78, 79. Um, I've lost where I'm going. And I'm going to go for uh, young Mr. McFadden. He just always seemed to have someone about him. I mean, he was just such a great performer for Scotland. He's got some amazing goals. And I have to finish off. Um, Neil's mentioned already, you can't have a team without Mr. Dalglish in it. I'm sorry. So here's my final pick. Yeah, well, I've, I've picked mine as well, to um, be fair, but I, I don't recall Ked Dalglish um, from my um, from growing up as a Scotland fan. I'm going from Italian 90 onwards. So I went with Gorham and goals because I think in a 6 to say goal, he's more agile. Um, I went with two defenders, um, but both of them are quite attacking. So I went with Richard Goff because I thought as a leader, he was one of the best Scotland captains ever. And I went with Tierney because, again... You know, for the balance of right and left and one will go forward, the other will sit so that's what I've went with them I've went with John Collins as well, unsurprisingly um, for his class and I've went with Stuart McCall because you need a runner in midfield and I've gone with McFadden up front so interesting dynamics and uh, everyone yeah, he'll, he'll be delighted to know he's in all four teams I'll have to let him know that <laughs> yeah. his ego's big enough <laughs> oh yeah <laughs> well anyway um, thanks very much for, Jim, Jim, for coming along um, it's been fun reminiscing on Scotland teams of the past and hopefully this is the start of an, a great chapter in the Scotland's men's national team era um, so thank you very much for coming along and we will round off by playing a new track from by the brilliant Scott McGill called Whatever It Takes. You can download it on all usual platforms like Apple and Spotify with all proceeds going to Strathcan Hospice. Offer a good cause and a great tune to get you in the mid for Euros. Well, we're in the mid, so thanks so much, guys, and um, take it away, Scott. To show what we're all about The great in our teeth Now the world's out of feet Wherever it takes us Whatever it takes Oh Scotland We're one in the same Oh Scotland We'll do it again 
together We'll take on all the pressure Oh Scotland, Scotland, Scotland We'll be there again We're gearing up for battle To hold down Hampton Castle Our heroes of tomorrow are coming today That's when our gears were stopping We're rolling out and topping Wherever it takes us, whatever it takes Oh, Scotland We're one in the same Oh, Scotland We'll do it again We're all in this together We'll take on all the pressure Oh, Scotland, 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 we'll beat it again. What a buzz. Fight, passion, tartar scars. The hand in roar. Paint, Scotland, paints together. More paints. Tonic wine. Tonic wine. Absolutely plaster. I can boogie. Ronnie Brown. Ronnie Brown. Archie Fletcher. James McFadden. Drama. Steve Clark, Steve McGinn, Tierney, Scott McTominay, Robertson, David Marshall, my dad, my sons, family, friends, my country. Oh, Scotland, well, one and the same. Oh, Scotland, we'll do it again. We're all in this together. We'll take on all the pressure Oh, Scotland, Scotland, Scotland We'll beat it again Scotland, 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 we'll be there again.